We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This is the Gator Nation Football Podcast with your hosts, Alan Williams and James DeVirginia. This place is an insane asylum in the slap. Oh, five. Now we know we're just a bunch of average stiffs. Right here with James DiVirgilio. We got Franklin for real sitting in, observing. What's up, dude? Guys, a really fun show headed your way. It's the March mailbag. We put out the bat signal for questions. You guys responded with a ton of good ones. We're going to try to get to as many of them as we can. I'm stoked to be talking Gator football again. What's up, James? Yeah, it feels great to be having a March episode, and each and every year this mailbag segment gets to be more and more voluminous. Hopefully you want that because we go away for a month and now we're back, and we have so much stuff to talk about. We probably should break this up into like four or five episodes and and give it more more love on each question, but I think instead what we're going to do is we're going to answer almost every single question, and then... We're going to get your feedback after this podcast on maybe the four or five questions you really want collectively to like have a more in-depth response on, and we can include that in our next pod. We have tons and tons and tons of good stuff to get to. We organized this thematically. We did not organize each question within the theme because we got so many. Uh, so we, you'll probably hear us kind of read over some and say, well, we've actually already answered that. So, so bear with the casual format of today's pod. As always, if you like our content, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, become a patron on Patreon. You can send us an email from our email address, whichever way you want to contact us, contact us. And over the break, over the month, we did have one new patron in the dog days of winter, uh, Harrison Stanley. Welcome aboard. Thank you very Welcome. much for the dono. Alexander's still sitting on his throne uh, during the winter time. I imagine he's in a, a large castle by himself with a fire, keeping himself warm. And oh, a fun update! Uh, yeah, this is last great. podcast we had. We had a gentleman who wanted his name to be that he wanted to get hired by by Feather by Alexander Leventhal. And here's the update: he did. He did. He did. It worked. So you too can get a job using the Gator <laughs> Nation Football Podcast Dono Machine. But that's actually a really cool story. Uh, congrats to both of them. We hope it, it certainly works out. That's awesome. Fun to be able to bring such things. Before we get started, wanted to give a shout out to a listener. Louis Velasco, we got word uh, that you're battling cancer, and we just wanted to say that we're praying for you, and 
you know, thankful that you're listening to the show and hope that maybe this episode brings you a little bit of joy. All of Gator Nation with you on this. So keep fighting, man. We're with you on it. All right, let's kick off the podcast, Alan, with some news and notes. Just a couple of items before we get into the questions. We last talked about the rumors of hiring Charlie Strong and Kerwin Bell, neither of whom we hired. Charlie Strong goes to Alabama. Any thoughts on this? I mean, Alabama's coaching rehab facility seems to be doing wonders for people, so I'm not surprised he went there. I mean, it's probably a tough, I don't know, cultural adjustment to navigate. You used to be like a defensive coordinator, you know, at one point interim head coach, and now you're just an analyst. I don't know how like that would sit with somebody like Todd Grantham. Would they feel like there's like a power struggle? So I'm not surprised he went somewhere else, maybe just even to avoid the awkwardness. I think it's another power play by Alabama and Nick Saban, and it sort of shows you the esteem True. that Nick Saban has. He doesn't care about taking on national championship winning defensive coordinators, guys that were head coaches. That's not going to be too big for his program. As I said before, I don't think strong fits schematically with what we should be doing anyway. Grantham's not doing the things I want either, so I don't know if that was going to help or hurt, uh, but I think at this case, is it a loss? Sure, an extra eyes, a set of eyes with, with Charlie Strong's experience would have been great, especially with his ties to Florida. To lose out on that seems like a bit of a bummer. I think more importantly, Alan, we need to continue to hire more analysts. I think that's the key. You need more of these people, not fewer of them. And it doesn't have to be like Charlie Strong level, what they're asking those analysts to do. I mean, the notch below him would be perfectly fine. Uh, but yes, robust off-field staff has been one of the keys for these dominant programs over the last few years. It's kind of the secret sauce behind what a lot of them are doing. So a huge announcement happened right as we finished recording our podcast last time, as luck would have it. Tim Brewster got hired. We answered some questions on Twitter uh, and Patreon about this. Of course, Alan, you and I love this hire. This was a grand slam hire. This was actually exactly the hire we did describe in the second half of that podcast. Here's what we need. Here's what we want to see Dan Mullen go for. And he did it. And that's excellent. I think this continues to show that Dan understands what we need on this staff. Uh, And this is a a slam dunk hire, Alan, that I think is already paying dividends for the program. Yeah, it's funny. If you're not familiar with Tim Brewster, longtime kind of ace recruiter of Florida, a little bit of a mercenary type of guy who recruits really well, big personality all over social media, the kind of guy I guess you hate if he's on the other team and love if he's on your team. I expect this to pay dividends for as long as he's here at Florida, but this is the type of guy guy you need to hire currently with our staff. And so even if we just up our, he helps us up our recruiting 10%, I think that's going to be a big deal for this team. And if you're paying attention to the enigma that once was the number one running back recruit for the 2020 class, Florida is now strongly in contention for him. And a lot of that has to do with Tim Brewster. So you're already seeing, us being in contention for a guy we would not otherwise have been. Uh, and that's kind of the power of having a guy who has, as you just mentioned, that sort of recruiting power pool or prowess. Yeah. I don't know if we're going to get much to the guy you're mentioning, Zach Evans, who has a tumultuous to say the least uh, recruiting story and profile. Who knows? I mean, I think every program in America at one point thought he was coming there. So I, I think people are, some people are forecasting him here. One of those things where I will believe it when he shows up and enrolls in class. So uh, until that happens, I'm not holding my breath. He may very well do that. 
this is the type of guy though I wouldn't count my chickens before they're hatched. And lastly, in our news and notes column, combine performances. So Rich Eisen ran the 40 in under six seconds, third time he did that. Congrats. Jerry Rice ran the 40 as a 60-year-old, basically. And a lot of Florida Gator players ran the 40. What stuck out to you, Alan, about some of these times and some of the combine performances from the Florida players? Yeah, a good performances overall by a lot of them, especially the guys who are expected to do well. I mean, Chris, Chris C.J. Henderson ran a 4.39, which is an excellent time for a corner. He looked really good in some of the drills. Um, I'm not a crazy combine guy, but that stuff, of course, pops when someone does really well. And he needed to do well because that's his profile is as an athlete. Also, you saw Zuniga, Grenard, lots of guys perform well who needed to perform well to solidify their status of where they're potentially going to draft it. I don't think anybody like, oh, man, we weren't expecting that for better or for worse. So I think a lot of those guys did what they needed to do which is good for them. And I think Van Jefferson too, and some of the, before he got hurt, like people were impressed with his route running and all hands, all the stuff that Gator fans had seen for years now. Yeah. A lot of speed. I think the key here was they delivered. Right. And that's a sign of program consistency, not just speed, but also work ethic. You saw what happened with polite, right? Previous draft. You saw what happened with some other guys in different regimes, uh, you're not seeing this with dance guys. They're they're performing as advertised, and that is the sign of a, a program on the rise. But it, it was notable, I think, just how fast some of our guys were. Freddie Swain running mid fours, you know, four four. It's a good time for him. It was very good, and we talked about last year that he's going to play a slot receiver in the league. I think for a long time. Right. That that time for him might have been the most important because he's a guy who's obviously productive, but in our offense with as many receivers, not eye popping stats. But I think the that time bears what you see on film. Now, if he had run slower, he'd been like, well, he's a guy who can probably do it. Now, I think teams are going to be a little higher on him because the the time matches the tape, and that'll allow him to get, I think, an even better draft position. I don't know. He's not going to vault up the boards to the first round, but maybe you know, kind of holds his spot. Like you said, did what he needs to do, but that was an important time for him. Good, good to see those guys kind of being sent off. And then C.J., disappointing year we heard possibly he was in fact injured during the year for a large stretch of it raises a lot of questions why you have a corner that fast not playing press man questions we're not going to get the answers to anymore but hopefully those guys will have productive and long nfl careers with that let's begin the mailbag portion of the march mailbag episode that we are about to embark on this should be quite a journey we're going to start with a category that alan termed present day news and notes so we went from news and notes to present day news and notes and the first question comes from a longtime uh patreon supporter jeffrey hoy what up what up jeff uh how excited are we about the current state of recruiting and the recent hire of tim brewster so we both talked about the hire of tim brewster we've talked a lot about recruiting in a nutshell now that it's all said and done how do you feel about it i would say excited is an interesting word um, I don't think I like, obviously we're not recruit Nick, so I don't lay in bed thinking about recruiting. Um, I, I would say I w- the word I would use was optimistic. And so that's good. I think we've been somewhat, you know, in the range of lightly pessimistic for a large portion of the Dan Mullen era. And then to go, well, I, well, I'm interested to hear what you say. I, I would say I'm more optimistic than I have been. I was probably a little more optimistic than you in the past. Would you say if there's a scale from pessimistic 
highly pessimistic to highly optimistic you've moved slightly from maybe even neutral to optimistic yeah i like i like doubtful to optimistic because we hadn't had enough data to be pessimistic okay but i was doubtful that's that a good way to get it. it done and i've definitely moved from doubtful to neutral to to more than slightly optimistic I think the the foundation is here for this next year's recruiting class to progress even further. We talked about the fact that although the rankings were close this year, I think you can make a very strong case that this year's class was in fact a step up in tier from last year's class. Slower improvements than I think any Florida fan would lay in bed dreaming of. Not enough stargazing, right? But we are seeing year-to-year improvement. We are seeing staff turnover in a positive recruiting direction. These are all reasons to be optimistic. Excited, though, is a different word. Excited means you're recruiting out of Clemson, Alabama, Georgia, uh, that level. Then I'd be excited. We're not there yet. Optimistic, feeling good about it. We can compete this way. That's much better. Excited, though, for me is going to be popping into a tier one class and really cementing ourselves to say these guys can get a bunch of top players. Evan Fitzgerald asks, when is the merch coming out? With two question marks. I might add four or five on there. Love the pod. Keep it up, fellas. Thanks, Evan. We're working on the merch. In fact, right now, Sam Coppinger and myself have spent many, many hours on the phone, emails, text messages, back and forth, getting a logo. Uh, Sam was in Nashville in the tornado hit. He is okay, thankfully. That just happened, That's obviously. Good. That's good news. Hopefully soon, as soon as the logo's done, we're going to begin to get it out there. We'd love to have it out there at the absolute latest by a July time frame. It's possible it could be much sooner. But uh, stay tuned. And for Sam, Sam knows I'm quite the perfectionist when it comes to logo and detail. So maybe he didn't know what he was getting himself into. But we're very thankful to him and his help. So just stay tuned on that. It will be coming. We've not dropped it out. We've gotten enough requests that we will definitely be doing something with that. And last in our present day category is Ozzy Mutz. One of the Mutz clan. What do you call them? Clan? Is clan the right word? Yeah. Many, many mutzes that exist out there in the world. and They're all fantastic. Around mid-season, we did an extend, hold, and fire test, which was true. Great piece of an episode. Now that it's over, where do you land? I'm going to ask you on just a couple of guys. A couple of guys. You're the AD. We're going to start with Chip Kelly. Now, you and I both held Chip Kelly. It's year two, middle of the season. Now it's year three. What are you doing with Chip? All right, am I the actual UCLA athletic director in their current state, or am I the theoretical one where I get to do as I please? We're going to go with the fact that you have unlimited power here, and that's a, that's a great question. You okay. can do whatever you want. Uh, I'm going to probably fire him, which is feels crazy to say. No, he's not getting fired because the UCLA athletic department is underwater currently, um, figuratively, financially. Uh, so, yeah, he's not going to get fired. If I'm the UCLA actual one, I don't fire him because there's still enough of a window that he could do something and I can't afford to. But I think I would go ahead and pull the trigger. It just weirdly hasn't worked. Now, again, that's probably not like slam dunk fire, but lightly I lean towards fire him. I'm going to hold Chip Kelly one more year. This will be the third year for his three-year test. He has been a disaster. You and I said on the podcast, Chip Kelly had maybe the highest upside and also the lowest. Yeah, we're seeing that. And that was because nobody really knew how serious he was. In fact, you and I speculated that we wanted Florida to interview him. And we said, hey, you would need to know as an AD how interested this guy was in coaching college football. It seems at this point he's not very interested. Right. In we were, if you can, hi- I think we were very amped up to hire 
the Chip Kelly who was at Oregon. I don't know if that guy exists anymore. And I don't think he does either. And that's where your firing comes from. That's very valid. On the outside, I give him his third year. I see what happens. But the line definitely is trending towards firing. All right, let's do let's do one more. Okay. Let's do one more. Let's do Scott Frost in Nebraska. Not the start the Nebraskans wanted. Really a rather disastrous season record-wise this year. A lot of Florida fans feeling very happy that we don't have Scott Frost. So you are Nebraska's AD, extend, hold, or fire entering year three. I'm definitely holding him. I This is one of those, like, my path to greatness is very narrow. You need a guy like Scott Frost who will would stay there, who could perform under the restrictions that Nebraska currently has in terms of recruiting and program building. So I don't know that there's a guy I could go out and hire that would have a better profile in him. That would be really hard. Now you could take some lottery tickets, but he's a guy who's shown he can do it. He wants to be there. Obviously you got to give him all the time you can. This is a Cliff Kingsbury, a Texas tech kind of deal in my opinion, where if you were ever going to break it big, it's with this guy. So you got to give him every out like way past where you would go with other people. So I think that's where they're going to be with him. They're nowhere close to firing him. Those are excellent, excellent points. I totally agree strongly in the hold category. Give him his time. He is the best lottery ticket they have. And what should make you feel better as a Nebraska fan is how UCF is trending downward at at a magnitude of a level down. That does mean that the head coach, it, it was significant. And he was a large part or all of the reason why they were good. Nebraska is one of the hardest schools to win at playing in a very competitive conference. That's an uphill battle for him. If I'm the AD, you're definitely hanging on excellent points there. All right. Now it's your turn to take us through what is going yeah. to be a lengthy schematics question. I do want to say one thing here. When Alan and I created this podcast five years ago, we thought it would have been really bold to have talked about strategy and schematics at the level we talk about it. And so it's very rewarding for me personally to see so many questions come in on the schematic side. And for us to be known as that is really amazing because that seemed like a huge risk. There are virtually no podcasts doing it back then. There are still very few that do it now. So I just want to say thanks for the schematics questions, guys. It's kind of right. rewarding yeah, you, for you asked for them. We asked for them and you guys delivered. So we're going to try to not repeat ourselves too much in this. A lot of this will overlap some, but we'll try to be brief where it does. Brian Dunlap. We'll start with him. He says, schematically, what do y'all like so much about Dan Mullen when it comes to the running game? I'm going to let you answer this first, Alan, because you're right about this and we agree. But this is sort of your corner corner that that you like to put out there. Well, going back to Mississippi State, I think they've – they've been very creative about how they've used their personnel and some of their blocking assignments. Now, uh, there's not much revolutionary you can do in the running game. Some people don't pay attention to the details of this. And I think I've been more impressed the the more granular I've got us watching the coaches film where you get to see the angle, at least the all 22. So from behind the offensive line and you see the poles, the blocks that could be there upfield. Now we're not making them. Again, so I guess you could say, well, we're not doing it. Therefore, it's kind of dumb to call it, whatever. It looks like it's there. And if you execute it well and you have the personnel match your like assignments, then there could be some big holes there. So it doesn't, you know, I guess at a base level, it's not like, man, what are we doing? Why are we 
running these formations? Why are we blocking in these ways? It seems silly. No, when you watch it, it's like, okay, I see what they're doing. We're not executing. It's like you call a pass. It's an out route. And the quarterback throws the guy over the guy's head. It's like, well, that was open. He just overthrew him. I think we're in that stage with offensive line a lot, obviously an inexperienced and not all that talented offensive line last year. So you see where the production could be. That's what we're aiming at there. And again, I don't think that we're doing anything that nobody else in the country is doing, but I like what we could accomplish if we had a quarterback who throw the ball and offensive line who could block. Seems like the the running game would be there. What I like about it is what you said. It's it's the it's the attention to detail. It's it's the the creativity. And what I mean by that is pre-snap motions that lead the defense to shift a certain way and then a variety of offensive line movements that are hard to pick up on if you're a, a defense that's maybe Yeah, you can't always tell what those things or, mean. Exactly. And if you're spread out and then you're you're strung in together and now all of a sudden you're not sure who's blocking, wide receivers block pretty frequently. Uh, there's a lot of stuff going on. Now, I myself actually prefer a much simpler NFL-style power running game. The reason why a lot of colleges don't do that is because you can take advantage of other programs in college that you just cannot do in the NFL. Guys in the NFL are not going to miss their assignments like they do in college. I think it's very advantageous to give the other team a chance to screw up by running your counterplay with a couple of little wrinkles in there. Uh, and that's wise. So that's what we like about it. It's, it's a really well-crafted. I think when we have the proper talent up front blocking, you'll see this pay dividends. It was a staple of Urban's running game as well and a reason why he ran the ball so well for so long. And I think that's what Alan and I both like about it. Now, don't let the production deter you. You have to have the offensive line tight end wide receiver blocking talent to execute these plays. It doesn't matter how good the play is if you don't have the bodies that can get downhill. We just haven't had those yet. And you saw it in his first year, and then going back to Mississippi State, like we theoretically could run the ball well, and we could not do it all this year, and that was a frustrating to watch it be almost there, but not quite. All right, let's go to the next question. Jeremy Bloor asks, well, we'll start with this statement. Thanks for the mailbag episode. I love when you guys do film analysis. This will be a challenge here for us. Can you explain how Kentucky's offense worked with Lynn Bowden, Bowden, I believe, at QB? If you're not familiar... All of Kentucky's quarterbacks get hurt. They move their star wide receiver to quarterback. Inexplicably, they are successful at this. They move the ball. They're not like scoring a million points, but they're doing well. Back to the question. Can you explain how they kept defenses from stopping them cold? I.e., you couldn't load the box, use a spy, etc.? Well, they all those teams did. So first of all, on film, every team loaded the box. Every team was playing as many as 10 guys in the box because Lynn Bowden would throw the ball maybe twice a game. They had no fear of him throwing the ball, and oftentimes he wasn't completing those passes. So even with that many guys in the box, the question becomes, why can't you stop it? Well, football is at its simplest a numbers game. So if if Kentucky is willing to put 10 guys into block for Lynn, which is really what was happening, it's like Georgia Tech-style football, then your 10 is still versus their 10, and you keep a safety. It's still man-on-man football. The margin for error is just smaller a lot of this had to do with Lynn's exceptional talent at running the football yes. out of the quarterback spot. I mean, he was exceptionally good at this. He's an NFL caliber athlete. You rarely have that kind of athlete playing quarterback. Kentucky had a good offensive line. They had the right recipe to survive this sort of stuff. Even with that being said, I found it to be rather surprising how much teams like Virginia Tech struggle to stop them just flat out running the ball. There's only so much you can do when it comes to running running plays. 
Uh, but there's a reason why my high school coach, John Sprague at Riverview, who coached for many, many years before losing his job or retiring, ran the, the wishbone veer. It's hard to stop that stuff if you have good athletes and you know what you're doing. So hats off to Kentucky for doing it. A lot of defenses don't see it anymore. A lot of high school defenders play against spread offenses. They're not used to running up against that kind of all-run uh, offense-oriented system. But all in all, remarkable is what I would say. And we didn't get yes. to watch a ton of Kentucky, but I watched enough to know what's going on. You would use exactly what you mentioned countering that. But again, if you fill the wrong hole and that team knows who to block, and you get a little crease, it's four, five, six yards at a time. And that's really what was happening, is they were just squeaking out yards, winning games 17-14, winning games at the end. But again, a remarkable job from Kentucky. Probably one of the the more underrated seasons, because they kind of got lost in the shuffle. But in the SEC, to do what they did, Alan, was pretty special. Agreed. And like you said, I think a lot of this was Lynn Bowden, his particular skill set. and He's just a hard guy to tackle. But then again, they weren't like putting up 50 points on people. They're, this is a service academy kind of idea that you can hold your own against some teams. You can shorten the game, all these things. They they maximize that, and I'll give the coaching staff credit for figuring that out. All right, Raul Rodriguez asks, what separates an excellent offensive strategist and play caller like Mullen or Spurrier from a mediocre one? What details do the good ones understand? Well, you answered your question right there, Raul. It's the details. And that's why it's a good question that you ask because you sort of ask what separates it, the details. What details do the good ones understand? Spacing, timing, and coverage. Spacing, timing, coverage. In order for routes to work, you have to have the proper spacing between the routes. You have to run those routes against the right coverage. You have to have the right timing for when the ball gets delivered, when the play gets called. If you can have all of those things and then you can teach the players how to do it, which is the last remaining piece, then you can be an excellent offensive strategist and play caller. That's why there are so few of those people. That's a lot of skills we just mentioned right there to really understand. You truly have to be a master. So for me, it's very simple. Guys like Mullen and Spurrier, they have an offensive mastery, whereas a lot of guys just have a skill set at it, but they're not masters. These guys are masters. They understand what's going on. They understand defenses implicitly. And uh, talk to anyone about Mullen and Spurrier, they'll understand defensive coverages better than a lot of defensive coordinators will. And that's kind of the hallmark of a really, really good play caller. And I think that that for me is is what separates those kind of guys. So there's two things we like to talk about here are strategy and tactics. And those words get conflated, but we'll use them distinctly here. And if you put it into like a military thematic era general, so the strategy be like, where and how do I attack? How do I put forth my army within divisions and where do I place them? And then tactically, how do I respond when the action starts? So in football, what kind of offense am I running? How well do I understand it? How well do I understand my personnel? And then tactically throughout the game, what am I doing to respond to what the defense is doing? And am I anticipating when they're going to be in certain places and in certain formations? There's a little bit of a poker player aspect to this and, like leveling and manipulating the other guy. Am I doing what they don't expect me to do? So some guys I think can be excellent strategists and not good play callers because they're, they're not anticipating well and vice versa. You could have some great play calls and you don't understand what your players are capable of or the overall strategy. I think that's probably less of those types of people, but it's hard to be both. 
And that's what would put somebody, especially like a Spurrier, who I think has a grasp on what is he trying to do overall and his philosophy of attacking. So again, if you don't have the big picture, you're not going to do well in the small picture. And I think what you just said at the end is so key. We talk a lot about this in the podcast. If you're new, it's game theory. We talk about game theory. We talk about leveling, which you alluded to, Alan. And and very simply, to really be a master, you have to know, if I show this formation, what is the defense likely to counter with? And if I move a guy here, or if I move a guy there, if I add this route here, what's their reaction to that? So it's a it's an action-reaction cycle, and the best have a very good feel at crucial times what the opponent's going to do. And if you can be one level in front of your opponent knowledge-wise, you can be very, very successful as a play caller. And that's something obviously Spurrier had in spades for a long, long time. And then Mullen proved last year, I think he, he really had a lot of metal for and then, of course, the best the best at this just are continually really good year in and year out uh, at, at sort of mastering their own personnel and then how teams are going to counter that. And that leads to wins. That adds wins to your team if you have that capability. All right, this next question gets a little more granular. It's interesting um, of how teams might respond to us. So uh, Stephen Kirkhoff, I believe that's how you say his name. What's up, Stephen? Uh says Florida threw a lot of in-breaking routes last year, especially to Kyle Pitts. How will defenses adjust to take those away, and what is our counter? Well, right out of the bat, this is a remarkable statement to even make. That One of my that? major criticisms on Dan Mullen during the Tim Tebow years, during the Mississippi State years when he came into Florida, is that you you don't run in-breaking routes unless they're a slant. They don't exist in your playbook. Digs, over-the-middle passes. With the emergence of Kyle Trask, who's unbelievably good at throwing those routes we started running them and that really opens up the football field so first off amazing that we're even talking about this second of all defenses will adjust the way they started to later in the year and that's by assigning either a safety to drop down and double so you're going to rob that if you ever played madden what happens is your safety will rob any dig route and you can key that on a player too so you can have your free safety or your strong safety say look on hike I want you to basically watch Kyle Pitts. If he makes any in-breaking route, you jump the route in front of him. Secondarily, you can shade linebackers into that. So you could have Kyle Pitts be manned up by like a nickel defender. He runs his route and you you bubble a linebacker either like inside into that throwing window. or outside into the throwing lane. So you give yourself like a buzz zone. Uh, there's all sorts of terms for these types of zones. Don't worry about them. Just know the goal is to slide somebody underneath to where the quarterback doesn't read it. And now that defender guarding Kyle Pitts has help. And so there's a little bit of a gamble as to where the ball may go. If teams specifically wanted to take away in-breaking routes, you could even have your slot corner uh, play a technique, basically inside technique, not to allow Kyle Pitts to get an inside release. Now you force him to the outside. You can roll your safeties outside. The real name of the game is teams will absolutely be keying on Kyle Pitts next year. There's a variety of ways you could counter this, uh, and, and teams will usually employ a second defender to help with that, and they'll rotate which one that is. So the quarterback cannot get a good feel, Alan, for who is going to be assigned to helping, and if he makes an incorrect read, it could wind up being an interception. Most importantly, it deters the quarterback from going to a guy like Kyle Pitts because there's too much confusion on his side of the field. Yeah, I think teams are going to make us prove that the other guys can do it. So they're going to watch Kyle Pitts eat everybody's lunch, and they're going to do some of that stuff you said and probably multiple things depending on how 
you know, effect of their personnel is at adapting. And they're going to say, hey, Grimes, Tony, Copeland, you're going to have to show us that you can beat us if we're doubling Kyle Pitts and rolling these exotic coverages his way. So that'll be really interesting early on. And our counter is very simple. So now, now imagine, to further out and finalize our example, you're going to play Kyle Pitts where your slot's going to force him to an inside release where a safety's going to come rob that route. Well, if a team has two safeties, now you've got, let's say, your wide receiver is going to be in the slot next mm-hmm. to Kyle Pitts. That guy could basically run a little quick one-step corner post route, bend the corner out, create space right behind the safety. Trask gets the ball in on time. Safety comes downhill, ball right over his head, touchdown. And you did see right? we threw some of these routes at especially Copeland. He didn't always track the ball well enough, or maybe we're just missing a little bit. But they've already shown that they're willing to do that kind of stuff, and I think – Hopefully that kind of stuff will be even more, I don't know, timed out, better rapport between quarterback and receiver by the time we get to the fall. Correct. And then there's multiple counters. If teams are dropping linebackers, that's where running the ball becomes very effective. If your linebackers are going to be bailing out of run coverage, you need to be able to make them pay that way. In football, there's always a counter to what teams do. Based upon what you just heard us say, what do you think is the most likely strategy teams will use? They'll use their linebackers. They're going to make us prove we can run. So I would expect to see that early on. Teams are not going to commit a safety down on us until they have to. That's a much more aggressive strategy. They're far more likely to say, you know what, let's play soft against the run, make them prove we can run it, which is why this season, just like last season, is going to rely heavily on the O-line as to how well we can use a guy like Kyle Pitts to create openings for other players. Okay, that hopefully that question gives you a little window into just how coaches have to think next level about what's happening. They can't just go, oh, Kyle Pitts is good. I'll throw him the ball. Okay, Daniel Gray asked a variety of questions. I think the one we're going to cover here is just the first one, and we'll maybe pick up some of these types of questions later on um, where we ask a lot about the offense and what we're going to do forward. But, James, specifically, do you see any scheme changes for our defense, i.e., do we move to more of a cover two or anything like that? Do I see any? I certainly hope so. Do I want it to go to a cover two? No, I hate a cover two defense. I think a cover two defense is is almost certainly best used nowadays, four or five snaps a game to rob a play, rob a post route, jump a corner, jump a, a hitch route on the edge. Cover twos have largely been erased from football because of the spread offense. And you can see this not only in college, but also in the NFL. There are way too many holes in this with vertical attack passing games. Mike Leach makes makes it a habit of eating up cover twos. Uh, the league, like we talked about a lot last year, has moved way more towards man defense and cover one. But that being said, you might be saying to yourself, wait a minute, James, the 49ers almost won a Super Bowl playing a lot of cover two. That's true, they did. They had a remarkable personnel to be able to run this. They had the best defensive line in all of football. They had a lockdown corner, Richard Sherman. You have to have exceptional talent nowadays to play a cover two. I think a lot of people like myself would argue that that defense, while it was really great, ultimately hurt them in a matchup against Kansas City where they would be they would have been well-suited to have played more man coverage against a team like the Chiefs, which is the team of the future versus kind of a defense of the past. But with all that being said, Alan, in college football, with our advantage that we should have on defense talent-wise almost every single year, I would like us to do way more of what we did not do last year bring our corners and nickels up, play on the line of scrimmage, press teams, make the windows small. More of what we did at the end of the year. Correct. And if you want to put two safeties behind them occasionally to play a cover two man, fine. The problem with that is it's not as easy to disguise when you want to roll to a cover one or a cover three or any kind of robber zone. It's just a little bit easier for a quarterback to pick up that shift. But all in all, you ask biggest strength, biggest weakness, Daniel. 
I think on defense, schematically, our biggest weakness has been the lack of willingness to be aggressive with our athletes on the line of scrimmage with opposing teams, wide receivers. I gave a lot of credit credit to Clemson, although they got beat by LSU. They were willing to consistently play man defense in the box, press against LSU. And they tried every corner they had until the game was over and they lost. And that's okay because you cannot beat a team like that playing zone Clemson played zone. They got burned. You can't do it. So that's our biggest weakness, I think, is that Grantham against good quarterbacks and good teams seems to want to play soft. And that has been tearing us up. As athletes, I'll ask you this question. Daniel asks, who's the X factor this season? Which is a tough question to ask this early. But who are some new faces you think that may allow us to do what Grantham said last year? I need more players that can that can defend across the board versus having these weaknesses I need to manage. Well, the X factor is what they do again at nickel. And we have a whole Amari Bernie question coming up. So I'm going to save this, but he's part of the answer. And what do they do with Marco Wilson? So that's where I'm leaning is like what their kind of multiplicity would allow us to, you know, kind of keep the same personnel in the field and not get caught in bad looks, depending on who you have out there. So again, really schematically, I think we have the talent to do, what you would propose would be the best way forward. I guess the biggest X factor is does Todd Grantham do it? There we go. All right. Let me ask a question here. I'm not sure who this is from. We kind of copied and pasted a little bit. Some of this is from probably from Twitter, but let me ask, how does the air raid, which I know you're a big fan of mix with the smash mouth run scheme that Mullen tends to like to run? Well, I I think that, Mullen doesn't necessarily run a smash mouth run scheme. You would consider him to run a spread run screen with, with the quarterback option being in there a little more finesse based. Uh, I'm going to call that how does air raid mix with pro style running. And I'm going to tell you to see the Kansas city chiefs mixed in with some college flair. So the difference between the chiefs and the Patriots are really like the the jet sweeps, the backfield action with Tyreek Hill. That's very college-like, and it's yeah. very effective when you have the speed they have. Patriots don't have that speed. It's not going to work. You have to be really worried about stretching the field vertically. So for me, the major appeal of the air raid is it should allow you to implement a pro-style running game. Now, Mike Leach does not do this. He keeps his run game notoriously simple. I think it's one of his Achilles heels is that he's way more strategic, Allen, than he is tactical. He runs the same plays every single year. He very much believes in his system. That is nice, but you have to be more exploitative using tactical play calling. Andy Reid did this masterfully this year. But if you want to know what it looks like, it really looks like what the Chiefs run. That's exactly what's happening. They're attacking you in all directions of the field, vertically, horizontally, backfield action and motion. It's an extremely well-designed offense, almost all of it comes from more of the college style of game uh, that then gets cemented with NFL style passing routes and complexity. But that is what it looks like. That is why I love it. I think you're going to see more and more of the NFL continuing to run it. It does, of course, Alan, require the proper trigger man, uh, which nowadays is a guy who's got an absolute missile for an arm, is very accurate. And if you're Patrick Mahomes, also can run. Right. right. That's 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 everything you could dream of. Um, but I think all in all, that offense is very successful. It's very hard to stop, especially at the collegiate level, if you can get it rolling. And again, you mentioned everything really comes down to the quarterback. If you have Patrick Mahomes, you could probably run almost anything, and he would be fairly successful at it. 
but the Chiefs has done a great job of accentuating his strengths and allowing him to be, I don't know, the next generation, like basically the prototype for what you would want moving forward. And even like, you know, size-wise, he's not the old school NFL, but he has everything you would want for this era of football. Okay, let's go to the next one. Uh, with Keon Zipper, 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 can't remember actually. With Keon Zipper poised to make an impact as a second tight end or halfback, how do you think that'll impact our running game, passing game? Didn't have a lot of those sets last year. Having a second tight end, is, as Bill Belichick discovered many years ago, he was well ahead of the curve when he had both Aaron Hernandez and Rob Gronkowski. Just, just stop and imagine that for a second. That's what he had on that football team. It's incredibly hard to stop, especially if they can run block even at all. So I'm going to answer your question in the best case scenario and say, imagine that you have two tight ends that can catch passes and can block, and then you have the receivers that we have, and you have a guy who can deliver passes like Trask. What does the defense do? They start guessing because they have to guess. They're not allowed to just react because it'll be too slow. And that's exactly where you want to be as an offense. The second tight end look is one of the most powerful looks in all of football. You're watching the tight end emerge more and more in the NFL. Again, Belichick really led this movement. And that is because that is a weapon to attack the middle of the field, which attracts safety attention, which allows your receivers to work one-on-one. If you have two tight ends, both of the safeties are worried about one of those tight ends making a corner route or a post route or a go route. It puts tremendous pressure on your defense, on your linebackers, on your coverage scheme. It's a phenomenal thing to have. We can only hope that we are able to utilize it more. We thought we might be able to last year, Alan. Just never came to fruition with Cruel and others back there really not being threats in the passing game. Right. Well, ideally, you'd want a guy, like you said, who can do both at an elite level. There are very precious few of those individuals in the world. Most guys end up being more of a blocker or more of a route runner. Kyle Pitts was essentially, a you know, at the start of the year, a glorified wide receiver who, you know, for – all his skills wasn't a dominant blocker by any means. I think he improved on that a lot. Kroll never really got there as a two-way kind of guy. We'll see. I mean, I think we have talent in the tight end room. And if those guys can start to fulfill that potential, I think that's going to open up things for us in a lot of different ways. Uh, much of what you said, not tipping the defense to what you're actually going to do by which personnel you have on the field. Prince Akeem. I hope you're really a prince. That would be cool. It says, you always praise Dan Mullen's run scheme. Makes a point about how we were terrible at run blocking. Um, and so maybe if that improves, he asks, how can another safety in the box benefit the man-to-man beaters we won with our receivers? Well, then you lose a guy in the back end of coverage, which means now you have four or even five receivers, if you count your running back, running routes into a one-less-man defended backfield which is a tremendous advantage. And with a guy like Trask, who's very, very accurate and can throw to spots, you're changing the game. Teams have obviously been extremely reluctant to drop any safeties down to come into the box because of what we could do against them. It would be a dream, Prince, to have a scenario where teams are worried enough about our run that they bring their strong safety into the box. That almost seems like that's an impossibility at this point, given what we saw last year. But obviously, if that happens, there's tons and tons of space in the field, and you are able to then run a variety of routes, and the game becomes much simpler. Now it becomes a matchup game. 
Now it becomes, hey, I like my wide receiver against this DB. Once I get that matchup, I might motion someone else across the backfield and know I've got a ton of space for my receiver to work. So the game sort of devolves in complexity uh, the more you can threaten a defense with the run. Exactly. And you, all of a sudden you can throw to wide open spaces of the field and let your receiver run into it. And that starts to really progress how dangerous you are moving the ball down the field. Okay, Tyler asks, I'd love to hear about which routes or route concepts be different types of coverage and why. And then any resources you recommend for learning more about the intricacies of the game. All right, I'll answer your second question first. So there's a lot of resources on Google. We get asked this question a lot, Alan. If you want to learn about coverages, the best way to do it is to go onto YouTube if you like to watch videos or go onto Google if you like to read and type in cover one, cover two, cover three, cover four explained. And there are just a plethora of resources that will do this for you. Uh, to answer your question, we'll start with a couple of very simple ones, and you can build them out in your mind from there. But one of the most famous route combinations in all of football is called the smash combination. And the smash is going to have a corner route being run from a slot receiver or a tight end on the line of scrimmage. Can you say what the corner route is? And the corner route is going to be you're going to run maybe 7 to 12 yards, depending on what team you play for and what the situation is. And then you're going to wind up breaking at a 45-degree angle to the sideline. That's going to be your corner route. And then you're going to have your wide receiver with a corner on him running a 6 to 10-yard hitch route. Six and eight. So you have a hitch and you have a corner going over top of this hitch, if you're imagining this in your mind correctly, against a cover two. A cover two is going to have a safety that is splitting the field in half, and that corner is going to be aggressive. That corner should be aggressive on the hitch route, which means you should be getting a one-on-one -on -one matchup, tight end or slot receiver versus safety, which is a matchup that you like. It's a very, very good cover two beater. The holes in the cover two are the middle of the field and the sideline. And it's a way for you to attack those areas. Uh, by the flip side of that, Allen, you can easily switch that route and have your tight end run a post route over the middle. And you can attack the middle of the field. Uh, but the weakness is in the cover two, sideline, deep middle. So what you do is you find creative ways to attack them. And the reason the smash route is such a popular route is now we can imagine the corner is going to bail on hike into, let's say, a cover four. So you have two safeties and the corners all drop back forth to divide the field in force. So it's one fourth, one fourth, one fourth, one fourth, splitting deeps. What happens then? The quarterback drops back. He reads that corner. He looks at the corner. He knows the corner bails. He knows he then has that hitch route underneath to his receiver. He delivers that. If he sees the corner stick and the safety's high, he knows he has his corner route. He sets his foot. He puts the ball to the mark on the corner. Very simple read. You're two on one in a cornerback. That's good football. Secondarily, the play that really defeated the cover three, which Nick Saban has wrote extensively about in his time during the NFL, was the four verticals. This seems so incredibly simple, but really for most of the 70s, 80s, and early 90s in the NFL, every single team started to run a cover three. It was sort of the end-all, be-all pass defense until all of a sudden quarterbacks had strong enough arms to run four verticals, put four receivers out there, or three receivers and one tight end. If you have three safeties and four receivers running a route, Imagine two guys on the edge running go routes on the sideline. Then imagine two tight ends running seam routes, and a seam route's basically on the hash. That middle safety, he can't cover both of them. Quarterback takes the ball, looks to the right, safety moves right, he throws a backside seam pass. Now Nick Saban famously writes about this, saying up until guys like Dan Marino played, there wasn't a quarterback who had strong enough arm to look off the safety and then hit that 30-40 yard seam pass with the guys like Dan Marino and now most NFL quarterbacks today, that is a pass they make in their sleep. So away goes the cover three. 
But what you're learning is there's a beater, if you will, for every single coverage. If you told an NFL quarterback exactly what the opposing defense is going to run, he could call a play that will have somebody open every single time. So therefore, the game of football then becomes a game of cat and mouse, a game of chess match. I'm not going to tell you what I'm running. You have to figure out what I'm running. Hopefully, my defense disguises it long enough from you as a quarterback that my defensive line gets to you and hits you, or I confuse you enough that you make a mistake. And that is really the beauty of football. It's the reason why we do this podcast. And hopefully there, we kind of went through a cover three beater and a cover two beater. And of course, there's those for everything. Can you quickly uh, detail what would be just the primary routes you'd run against, like a man-to-man defense, which you say would be coming more and more? Sure. One of the favorite man-to-man routes uh, against against any kind of man coverage, let's say press man, is one that Peyton Manning ran all the time. And, and it's, it's super, super simple. It's the slant wheel. So you're going to have your outside receiver run a slant. And you're going to have your slot receiver. So the slot receiver is the guy that's closer right to the uh, the quarterback. He's going to run a wheel right underneath that slant route. It creates a natural pick. It's completely legal. Uh, the defense then either has to switch that very quickly, which is really, really hard. And if they don't switch, as long as that wide receiver runs his slant correctly to get into the way of the defender guarding the wheel, it's a wide open touchdown. And Peyton ran this play to perfection during his career. You can find tons and tons of highlights from throwing touchdowns here. There's plenty of other combinations that work that way, but primarily, as you heard us talk about on the pod last year, Alan, the best man-beater routes are rub routes, just like that. Whether it occurs down the field, like LSU did a lot last year, or right on the line of scrimmage, you need to do something so that these receivers are basically causing the defenders to have to switch off or run into each other or run into one of your players to just simply run a corner route against a man defense, although your man could beat him, is a far less efficient way of getting your receiver open. So yeah, you'll you'll see a you know, lots of offense features, a ton of slants, you know, to try to press the defense into doing something different because you if you don't have the type of coverage guys, then that's a very simple route. But really what you want to I want to highlight what you said is you're not just talking about routes. You're talking about combinations of routes and that's a little bit where you were criticizing dan last year is not using the type of not just the routes that they are running they're running good routes but the type of combinations they were being used in that weren't maximizing what those guys could be doing on the field okay tyler rents asks the difference between different defensive schemes and we've covered this a little bit covered to zone man how to spot the and how to spot those schemes easier basically if you're the quarterback and you're looking out, I think if I'm understanding this question, how are you identifying what defense is it, what uh, scheme the defense is in? Yeah, this is good. So let's let's do exactly what a quarterback would do. So you're in the huddle. If you're in college, you're gonna get the play call from your from your offensive coordinator. So Dan calls it in, you're Kyle Trask, you break the huddle, call the play, you tell the receivers what to do, the running back what to do, and the offensive line what to do based upon three code words. Then you get break the huddle and you look. So the first thing you're going to do is you're going to look at the back end and you're going to say, how many safeties are there? Okay, they're showing me two safeties. That means it could be cover two, could be cover four. Let me look at the corners. Are the corners pressed up or are the corners off? Are the linebackers soft or are they threatening? How many guys are on the line of scrimmage? And you're taking this picture in within really four to six seconds. You're making your pre-snap read. Then you'll make your adjustments. So if I think it's a cover two, I might call a route audible. I might call an offensive protection slide if I feel like there's a blitz coming to make sure I have time to get my playoff. And then I take my snap. When I take my snap, I'm going to key again the back end or my key defender. So you heard me talk about earlier, if I pre-snap read, it's the cover two. I'm going to take that snap and I'm going to read the corner. The safety doesn't matter. I read the corner. If the corner bails, 
I look for my hitch, the corner sticks, I look to my corner route. That's my progression. If those two aren't there, I probably look to a check down, running back coming out of the backfield, drag coming across the field, and that in a microcosm is a play. Now, what gets confusing is all of that stuff I just told you could have looked like cover two, and then on hike, they could have rolled into a cover three where they brought a robber down into one of my lanes. And this is corner bails. It looks like he's pressed. Corner bails, but now now the slot nickel shoots over to rob my hitch route. Right? There's a million things that go on here. So then, what does a good quarterback do? He processes the picture very, very quickly. He sees where the moving parts are going. And the beauty is, if you played long enough, you've seen enough pictures to know if they do this, this is where the hole has to be. Then the question is, do I have enough time to get the ball there? Right. So it's a game of very, very quick processing. That is the game of quarterbacking in football. It's one of the biggest reasons why on this very podcast, we were able to correctly identify, Alan, I really think before anyone else, just how good Kyle Trask was because his brain was super, super quick at making these decisions. That is often a tremendously underrated skill amongst the novice football fans because they really have no idea what a quarterback is doing. They think he takes a snap, uses his rocket strong arm to throw a corner out. It's not what's going on. So defensively, it's much easier to identify post-snap a zone versus man if it's pure, right? So man defense, your guys line up, they guard people. Zone defense, your guys line up, they guard an area. But the reality is very little of football is either one or the other. Most of them are some sort of match. You have zone on one side, man on one side. You have a looks like man and then becomes zone. And this becomes much, much more complicated. This is hard to describe in a podcast medium. But again, this is something where I highly recommend you go into YouTube and you take a look at cover one, cover two, cover three, cover four, and then you take a look at hybrids, cover six, take a look at man shifting to zone, watch these things on film, and you'll get a really good idea because there are rules. There are rules. If I'm going to have a cover three go to a cover two, there's really only a couple of ways I may do that. And you'll begin to recognize as you watch the game what these things look like. At the end of the day, if you're watching a film, the easiest thing to do is press the play button on the play, wait a couple of seconds, and press pause. Wherever you see the safeties go, that's the easiest way to identify it. If you have only two safeties deep, cover two. If you have two guys, two safeties plus two corners bail, cover four. If you have one safety high, everyone else pressed up, and it stays that way, cover one. Cover three is what you think it should be. Corners bail, one single high safety, cover three. It's easier to identify it by kind of pausing it a couple of seconds in. That's what the defense actually became. And you can recognize, okay, they showed two safeties and went to one. They showed two safeties, went to four, and you yourself can get pretty good at identifying what exactly is happening. Just real quickly on this, a lot of teams will send a guy in motion, right? And this is not just to primarily change the side of the field that he's on what is that telling the quarterback when they send the guy in motion yeah great question why are guys running in motion especially in the nfl especially in lsu's offense is to see if someone is going to trail him if someone is trailing him nine times out of ten it means they're going to man defend that guy especially in college now in the nfl they can get much more creative they can trail you but they can actually pass you off post snap to go into a zone Uh, but in college if someone is trailing you they're probably manning you And it's really a signal for the quarterback. Let's pick up some information. A lot of times in college, those are built in. In the NFL, they're not. Aaron Rodgers may look to his left, think he's got man coverage. He might tell his receiver, hey, come in motion, just a reset two or three steps in. It won't affect the route. If the guy follows him, now he knows he's got man coverage on that side. And so everything that we're talking about here is geared towards picking up as much information as possible. In the college game, a lot of this information, Alan, gets filtered through Dan Mullen's brain 
so that he's calling a play that beats the defensive coordinator's brain because a lot of college football teams are not going to play with this complexity that we've talked about. And one of the main reasons to kind of put a bow on this conversation that I love four and five wide receiver sets with a quarterback like we have is it greatly simplifies what defenses can do against you. They just cannot run a lot of confusing sets because they're too spread out and they have to cover too much of the field. So it really eliminates a lot of the more exotic or confusing underneath coverages. And I think it's a reason why Trask was so good last year, despite our offensive line, is they can only do so many things. Uh, And so a good quarterback can really take advantage of that. All right, let's talk about this. Let's move to the offensive side. Hypothetically, this is from Joe Pisani. Hypothetically, can you envision and describe a way in which both Trask and Jones could be effectively used? So we've talked a lot about how we dislike this for multiple reasons there. And we have talked a little bit about why it's effective, but could you, all right, you have both these guys. Could you envision a way where you would like to use them both? Yeah, I think that, again, I'm going to say that there's just no reason to use them both for the overwhelming majority of the time. I think in Kyle Trask, we have a very special college football quarterback. You're not going to take Joe Burrow out to put someone else in, period, even if he couldn't run. You're just not going to do it. The case to use Jones, if you're going to use it, is much like how we used Tim Tebow with Chris Leak. Now, Trask is much better than Chris Leak. This is not the same situation, but we did employ Tebow correctly. He was a short down running back. He was a red zone option. It does make sense to bring in a guy like Emery on the two or three or four or five yard line because there's lots of stuff you can do. Passes are simple. If it's not there, throw the ball to the back of the end zone. If not, run it. Those are all valuable places to use him on. We haven't really done that with him. Uh, So for me, if you want to find a way to use him, red zone is the primary spot, specifically within the five yard line. A guy like Trask is going to be either handing it off or throwing it. Again, I'm not taking Trask out, but if you want to craft a way and you want to give him some packages, that's what that should look like, in my opinion. You need to get something complementary that you don't have with Trask, and the best place to utilize that is definitely, again, I think within the five, six-yard line. Right, because those Trask, is, his ability to read the defense, gets the field is compressed, so there's less opportunity for that. And especially if it's a play where we talked about the defense knows you're going to run it, and you're going to run it, go for it. Right. So I think in certain clock killing situations, too, there might be some benefit of having him out there where they can't necessarily load up on Damian Pierce or whoever. Um, so what we're talking about, though, is situational. I think where some people are envisioning is there's some kind of meta tactical strategy where you're running them in and out. I, I don't envision that being helpful. And certainly everyone loves trick plays. I love trick plays. If you want to run Emory Jones out there and have him line up in the backfield with Kyle Trask and then you just whether it's a decoy or anything else, the defense has to account for that occasionally in certain spots in the field, right? Flea flickers are fun. You don't run flea flicker every time, but you do it in certain strategic moments. So I think that's where I would want to see us lean. Not like, okay, we get to the 40 yard line. We bring in Emory Jones. Hopefully Emory's going to get a ton of work next season. Cause we're going to be blowing out teams. That well, would be ideal. And you just spark something in me. It's funny. I've been reading this question saying, can I envision and describe a way? Oh, I, I totally can. In fact, the offense that I run for the pro flag football game, the offense I run for my own flag football team, uses three quarterbacks in the backfield. These are legal plays in football. In fact, the Bengals had a formation that looks exactly like how I would run it. And it could be run. Uh, I think one day that's going to happen in the NFL. I think you're going to see two quarterbacks on the field at the same time. The Saints have flirted with this already multiple times with Taysom Hill. It's going to get there. It's the next evolution of the game. 
or just not there yet because it's a drastic change. But sure, I could. I could imagine a scenario where Trask is in the middle of the field as quarterback. Emory Jones is off to the sideline, 10 yards behind two receivers that can either run routes or block. And Trask could throw take the take the snap, make a read, throw it backwards to Emory. Emory could still run or throw. That's absolutely a way that you could use Emory. Again, we're very far away from that. Right. That's not like so outside of that. Uh, running a conventional offense, as you mentioned, the best strategy is to have your best quarterback on the field touching the ball all the time. Again, with the exception of a couple of snaps a game with some very creative wrinkle plays built into that. Uh, but the problem you have when you're running wrinkle plays without a guy getting a lot of snaps with you is you can't disguise it very well. The reason the Saints were so good is Taysom Hill was getting 20, 25 snaps a game. Right. So a lot of those snaps, he's just blocking. But then eventually he's hitting you with something. And you need that sleight of hand. There's no real way we can get Emory on the field conventionally for that many snaps, to which I say you're really just better off letting Trask touch the ball every time and be the director of the offense. Interesting point there. Um, Let's talk a little bit about Bernie at star. So this is a a question from Chris Casey. He says, I've seen a lot of people talk about Bernie at star, linebacker, and safety potentially. Can you all discuss the different things that the defense would have to do to adjust when Bernie plays at each of those spots? Um, I'll, I'll start with this one. I, it's more about us adjusting, I think, is the benefit to what the offense is doing without having to sub. So normally, let's say if the offense is – they bring in two tight ends and you're like, oh, they're running the ball, and you put all your heavy linebackers in and then they throw it, and you're like, oh, no. Having versatility means from a guy, this is why Isaiah Simmons for Clemson is going to be drafted so highly, is he can do anything. You can leave him out there in every situation. That is kind of the idea with Mario Bernie is you have him at linebacker. Oh, the offense, they have a guy, the tight end runs a route. We thought he was blocking. He covers him, shuts him down. You're not worried about him not being able to do something. So whether you want to give him a dime look, you surprise him with a dime look, he's at safety. He's that linebacker. He's that star. You can disguise what you're doing. Really, it's not about the offense reacting to you because that's kind of the point. The offense reacts when you put the, all your linebackers like, oh, we're going to throw the ball. The point is that they can't react to you, I think. That's absolutely right. And they can't also pick on someone. Right. As a quarterback, you want to look across the field and say, that guy's struggling. And then you find a way to call a play to, to make that guy cover. I think the most likely case for Bernie is linebacker in a traditional 3-4, which we've chronicled every single year that we just can't really run a regular 3-4, yet we kind of put three down linemen in there. We're sort of like a hybrid 4-3. It's very odd. We don't have the talent yet. His natural spot's definitely outside linebacker in a 3-4. Star, he just would never be as good as Marco Wilson if he did it that way. He just can't cover like Marco Wilson. Again, he covers well, but to me, linebacker's there. Safety is intriguing because there's such a gap there. But I think all in all, you don't want to play him at star and safety. But if you put him at linebacker, now you say, hey, great, you want to you want to move your tight end into the slot? Bernie will guard him. You know it and I know it. That's the kind of matchup. Right, he basically functions as an extra nickel. He can function as an extra nickel. So now you have two nickels in the field. But you put him at nickel, you're going to make him cover a team's third best receiver. Right. That's not his best school suit. But now you're not going to get an advantage on me with your tight end or someone else. And that's really the spot he should be playing. Right. Well, that's the, and that's the power of that. Like basically if you have David Reese out there and you can isolate him on a route, he's probably not going to be able to cover it. You can trick us into doing some things we don't want to do. The idea with like, if basically if you had 11 guys who are exactly the same as you had, I don't know who's the best. If you had 11 Isaiah Simmons is out there, you could disguise what you're doing at all times. You would never know. Now functionally you can't do that, but that's the idea. So it's, that's why 
you're seeing NFL teams want to have positionally diverse players because the offense can't dictate to them what they're going to do depending on the personnel. Yeah, and you want positionally diverse, but you also need expertise. It's both those things. Like That's Alan true. Saying, Here's a trade-off. Yeah, certain positions have to be able to do multiple things. So obviously corners – that's the simplest, right? Highly specialized, fast switch, muscle fiber guys, super quick reaction guys. They got to be able to chase people, period, done. Linebackers are the ones you're mentioning. The NFL's moving towards these guys that can do everything, right? And there's not many of them, but you got to find those guys. They can cover the super athletic tight end. They can come downhill and hit people in the run. They can rush they the can, passer. They can rush the passer. Those are the guys that you're trying to find. And what this really means is a lot of those really athletic guys that would have traditionally played something else, played offense, played in another spot, linebacker now becomes a fun spot to play. or before they were like oh you're too small to play linebacker because you're not we don't want to run you to the line and thump you in there a million times again now with the way things are changing that's becoming much more valuable okay uh someone i don't want to have the name here maybe would love for james to elaborate around his optimism with mullen 2.0 as you've termed him giving his current qb recruiting strategy trask is refreshing under cdm but feels like an anomaly and future holds more of damn 1.0 BTW, only Gator Pod worth a dono. Well done, gentlemen. There you Thank go. you for that. We appreciate yeah. that. We know there's a lot of other Gator Pods out there. Dan 2.0 versus Dan 1.0. Well, as I've said, and I'll continue to say, I don't know. None of us know if it's Dan 2.0 or 1.0 until Trask is gone. We are not going to know this. We just don't know. This year, there is something, I think, Alan, that would take a step towards Dan 2.0, which we talked about last year. What kind of pass patterns do we run in 2020? We should have a much more coherent four and five wide offensive passing combination offense. We were so simple last year. It was almost like the coaches just took the most basic of route combinations and put them out there. We need to be a lot more proficient at this. If we are, that would signal to me that Dan Mullen took the time not only to maximize this year, but also very probably change his future coaching style in the passing game. That's the best case scenario for Dan 2.0. Dan 1.0, in my opinion, at this point would be a major regression to go back to a very simple passing offense based upon the quarterback running a lot. If you're looking at the next guy after Trask, whether it's Emery, who we'll see what happens, or whether it's Richardson, who's definitely a very, very good thrower of the football, only time will tell. But we can't Still in more of that dual threat profile. I think Dan's still obviously... Well, we'll see. We'll see who the next guy he takes, right? Because Richardson was already committed pre-Kyle Trask emergence. But I don't know. You're going to have to wait a couple years probably to know the answer to this. Okay, Seth Davis, spread versus pro offenses. Why does the NFL still use bunch sets when college teams have almost abandoned them? I think this comes down to simplicity. I'll tell you who used a lot of bunch sets. LSU. A ton of them. All the time. In fact, as soon as they saw you were in a certain coverage, they'd tighten their receivers in and then they would kill you because they're super, super effective against both zone and man. If you're running a mesh concept where you're going to have one receiver from each side of the field run anywhere from five to six yards and kind of cross over each other to create a natural rub, out of the bunch sets, you can run those at a devastatingly high rate because you can also run a bunch of other combinations off of them where you've got two receivers on each side. Now they're tight to the line. They can block. They can run flares. They can run vertical routes. The reason it doesn't happen that much in college is because it's too complicated. You don't see a lot of teams do what LSU did last year, which is before the snap, change up their entire splits of their wide receivers. That is a very complicated thing to teach a wide receiver. Hey, read the matchup. 
quarterback calls the matchup. Now you line yourself up, you find the spacing, you find the gap. That's some next level stuff. That's one of the reasons why LSU is the most prolific offense ever. So I think the answer to your question is just very simply complexity. If you're a college football team, you might have eight or nine receivers. You're trying to teach all of them your system to then teach them all the nuances of the game becomes very complicated. It's one of the reasons why Allen LSU basically didn't play backups. Yeah, they only played like four guys. Which is very NFL-like. And they were lucky that they didn't have injuries. Very fortunate. You played all those guys, and all those guys had all the knowledge, which is very helpful. But most college teams just abandon that kind of philosophy. It is very risky. If you get injured, your next guy can't do that anymore. Now your offense suffers. But bunch sets are very effective. They're not going anywhere anytime soon. There's a wide variety of ways you can attack teams using them, especially if your predominant base set is the spread. Now we spread you out. Now we're going to shrink you down. We're going to make you cover different angles, different types of the field. How do you want to respond to this? Uh, So again, I think with college teams, it just comes down to the simplicity of roster management and what you can really teach these kids versus the NFL where you can go much, much deeper. All right, Marshall McLean, ask us to do some diagnosing of certain coverages and things like Urban Meyer did for the Big Ten Network and our in-depth analysis on coverages and pattern matching. And um, this is this is what I'll say about this, Alex. Yes, we I included want... this because this is something you can watch. Urban Meyer has done something talking about multiple coverages, especially cover one and cover four, which you should check out. It's on YouTube. All you have to do is Google Urban Meyer you know, coverage breakdown, and you'll find it. So a lot of the questions have gone in this direction. Secondarily, we talk a lot about pattern matching, and you heard us mention that really nowadays hardly anyone is playing just man or just zone most of the game. It's a combination of the two. Pattern matching, there's lots of good resources online. We've talked about it here. It's the idea that the defense is either playing man or zone depending on the routes being run. So as the routes get run, the receivers uh, run their break, and then the defenders choose how to defend. So they're reacting whether they're going to play zone or man is not predetermined. It's very complicated. Nick Saban loves this stuff. The major problem with pattern matching, as I talked about last season, is it was relatively new, and now teams are finding ways to exploit it. So again, any system that has rules is a system that can be exploited. Because if I know that your corner is going to not guard my receiver if I run a certain route, then I can do that at the exact right depth, make it look like something, turn it into something else. So it's a never-ending game of game theory. It's why it's so much fun. But this goes beyond the scope of what we're talking about today. Pattern matching is not hard to understand when you see it. It's very helpful to watch it on film. Uh, Nick Saban's got a fantastic... There's a whole entire article written about Nick Saban's exact rules on pattern matching with video that will show you. It's really, really good. Check it out there. Uh, But again, a good topic. Pattern matching is important. It's one of the best defenses to employ in the red zone. Because the field shrinks and you're able to switch off that route we talked about earlier, Alan, you can switch off like a slant wheel. You can pass it off right away and therefore you're covering it immediately and it will immediately stop an entire play. Very, very important to have in your arsenal. Uh, And again, a little more complicated than just manner zone. All right. Now, presenting sponsor, mybookie.ag. March Madness coming up, Alan. I'm sure Justin Seitz and Steve Seitz will be all over the betting wires. Justin putting everything he has in the Florida Gators to win a national title, as we know he did before basketball season. But what's important here on this pod is mybookie.ag gives you more ways to win than anyone else does. They've got the fastest payouts and better lines than any other sport book. Join now and mybookie will double your first deposit. You can use the promo code GATORNATION to activate the offer. 
That's promo code GATORNATION. Visit mybookie.ag today. You play, you win, you get paid. Thank you, my bookie. With that, we're going to talk about some recruiting. Just a few recruiting questions here. Cody Shadowin asks, with Mullen bolstering position coaches, so Brewster, which we've talked about before, do we see a change in the trajectory of the program? So, Alan, we sort of already answered that and said that's the right direction. So we're going to call that a change of trajectory. And is that change heading towards Tier 1? Yes, but there's a lot of distance to be covered. Right, and interesting, Tim Brewster's our tight ends coach. You're not usually recruiting a lot of, like, just sheer volume at that position. So it would be interesting to see how much he affects the overall recruiting and who he's assigned to. And that's the nitty-gritty recruiting that I don't really know or follow. Um, I think you're hopeful that he's going to impact the overall recruiting and not just the tight end position, which is why you bring a guy like that on. Randall Lockhart asks, thoughts on in-state rivals and their progress on recruiting and coaching hires? And also, why is UCF not included on the in-state rival list? Uh, I have to say, you know, FSU and Miami are, are really scuffling at the moment. They're not bringing their usual caliber of recruits. So this is a moment for Florida to really strike while the iron is hot. And I don't think we're, unless something dramatic changes, we're never going to compete directly with UCF for most recruits. And if we are, that means maybe we shouldn't be recruiting that guy unless it's just a real diamond in the rough. I don't know. And if we're offering him, he should probably come to UF. So they're just, even though they might on the field on a certain day, be competitive with us, depending on the states of the program, ideally you're never really competing with them, quote unquote, for recruiting. I think the simple answer to that question is conference. If you could wave a wand and put UCF in the ACC or the SEC or the Big Ten or any of the Power Five conferences, they would absolutely be included as a rival. But right now, if you're if you're a kid in the state of Florida or anywhere in the South, you want to go to a Power Five program. Your goal is to play college football and to go to the NFL. And therefore, going to UCF makes that road much, much more difficult. That's the main reason why you don't see them typically included with a Florida rival. And as Alan said... This is a really excellent time for Florida to really build good recruiting ties in the state because Miami and Florida State are more down than they've ever been at the same time together. And here we are ascending. So a crucial time in our program. All right. The face of Twitter, nice little handle there, uh, asks, can you look at the upcoming recruiting classes and and the recruits that we have and project if we're moving more towards Dan 1.0 or Dan 2.0. We talked about the quarterbacks here, Alan, and we said, you know, hard to tell. I think your answer is going to be the same here. But essentially, can we tell anything from who he's recruiting as to where the roster may be going towards? You know, there's a guy who's committed for 21, Carlos Del Rio, and I just confess that I don't really know a lot about him. So how he profiles as a quarterback, whether he's a guy who's primarily a runner who can throw it a little bit or a thrower who can run a little bit. I'm not sure. I think the next guy after that. So even the 20, 22 guy will be really interesting depending on how it goes here with Kyle Trask this next year. And the rest of the recruits in the roster, it's, it's hard to tell. It's not like Dan 2.0 would all of a sudden start recruiting a bunch of different players for his offense. He's always wanted speed. He wants to have electric running backs. He wants to have a tight end that can block and catch passes. So those things would all be the same regardless of what your offense looked like in the future. And you would hope to get bigger, stronger, faster guys. That's true either way. So I think the answer to the question is, again, 
the quarterback will be the most telling spot as to whether it's Dan 1.0 or Dan 2.0. And that just remains to be seen. Can't make any reads yet quite from recruiting. AJ writes, thoughts on the Brewster hire, which we've definitely covered. Noticeable recruiting impact already happening. Uh, how would an Evans change? We mentioned him at the top of the show, Alan. Change the perception of the 2020 class. Evans is a five-star. It would give us another five-star, which would be two in the class, including the transfers, four total plus five if you count Cox, which would be an incredible haul, which would vault us basically to number one in the 2020 class rankings if you counted all, all of guys. the transfers yeah. and everything else going on there. Would that change your perception of us being able to pull one of, a former number one overall running back in this class? That's interesting. Of the class itself, it definitely gives it more high-end, immediate impact kind of a guy. I just have so many questions about a guy like this. Is it just circumstantial and he's going to end up being fine? Or, you know, is he just so problematic that he's barely worth it because he's so talented? I just don't know that much about him. He would still be a major question mark for me, even if we landed him. So um, certainly it changes your, like, you know, your 24-7 composite talent raking by a lot. But is that ever going to translate in the field? I don't know. Does it change my perception? No, and I'll tell you why. This is the guy that Kirby Smart walked away from that was like, you know what? We're not going to deal with this kid anymore. This doesn't mean that he can't go on to change his behavior and become fantastic. It doesn't mean he already wasn't a really solid kid. But for a team like Georgia who loads up on talented players to basically say, we're not going to deal with this guy when you know they deal with a lot of crap already tells you something. So what that means for me is this would not be winning a head-to-head battle with a Georgia or an Alabama to where we could say, hey, this is something. We went toe-to-toe with them and took the number one player. This is a little different than that. Still good. Don't get me wrong. I'm still stargazing here. But as far as like what kind of perception would it change, it would mean that this class has a lot of intrigue, and now it has even more intrigue, and I would really be in favor of it. I think the chances are decent that we land him. So that might be something we talk about further in the future. Pamela Schultzler asks, can you please talk about the benefits of having preferred walk-ons? Very interesting question, Pamela. What do you think, Alan? I think these are great. These are basically potentially extra scholarship players. They're guys that you know, you don't want to, I guess, burn or waste the scholarship. I don't know if it'd be a waste. Use a scholarship on, but who could potentially come in and help out your team. Um, and they're guys that you want in the program, whether they're on the practice squad, they're competing for practice reps, they're there to perform in a pinch. Maybe you get in a spot where a guy, by the time he's a senior, is able to be a rotational guy for you. You know, a Christian Garcia, somebody who can help out on special teams when you're injured. So these guys can be very valuable and they cost you like nothing scholarship wise. So if you have a guy you really like who's willing to come to a guy place like Florida rather than go play at a smaller school. I think that only really helps the overall depth of your program. Yeah. I think it also helps culture wise because that means that guy would rather be in your culture, not playing when he could play football somewhere else. That's an active choice that player makes those guys. If they stay tend to be glue guys for the program and make no mistake about it. A good scout team is important. And if you have preferred walk-ons, one of the main functions they'll play is they will play on scout team and they will be good. 
which means your practices will be better than they would be if you just had guys showing up to walk on that are you know good athletes but not that caliber. So certainly it strengthens your overall roster. It builds your culture in a better way. There are benefits for having them. Primarily one of the reasons that preferred walk-ons sort of get this status, uh, sometimes the coaching staff may feel like they have upside and they're not being recruited very heavily. And so it's worth a shot to give them the status so they feel like they're esteemed, that they're wanted. And then it gives those guys a shot that if they do kind of hit the moon shot, uh, you know, then you can easily give them a scholarship. And they felt recruited the whole time versus maybe more diamond in the rough. Right. So this is the preferred walk-on. It's basically like, you know, teams will have tryouts where you can be a walk-on. And if you make the team, quote unquote, you're on the team. These guys are basically being promised a spot on the team where they don't have to try out so to speak but they're not getting a scholarship somewhere in between that correct and they do have value as we mentioned there good question pamela all right interested to hear uh, our expectations on the five-star guys and what their production should be as a freshman to not be a bust as a five-star so i'm first going to say that no matter what position group you're in you can't be a bust as a freshman because you could have a tremendous sophomore year even after struggling in your freshman year that happens plenty of the time the opposite is also true. If you are a phenom, you are probably going to be a phenom very soon into your football season. So, Alan, what does it look like? If you get a five-star, and we know positions are different, but let's say corner versus O-lineman versus D-lineman, how would you move those expectations around? Well, first let me talk about what is a bust. So I think you – let's take – Antonius Clayton, if we, who's on the verge of a five-star, five-star in some things, basically never played for us. Easy to call him a bust. Now you guys got like Martez Ivy, CC Jefferson, who are quality starters for us, played basically their whole time from their freshman year on, never got to the heights of their ranking. Are they bust? Now, I would say no, because, you know, they were, quality players for you now do they underperform their expectations yes but i don't think that it's the are you a number one overall pick or you're a bust kind of a thing so i want to categorize that a little bit um uh, o-line you asked about position groups yes this is where you led me on that question o-line notoriously need, you need time to develop guys rarely play there immediately if they do it's because there's a great need or they're just exceptionally good right away at processing mentally and physically what's going on. Um, often you'll get running back is the easiest place to put a guy out there. Quarterback is the, maybe the last place you would want to put and you would just like move that around in terms of the complexity of the position. That's also why corner is a place where you can bring a guy like Kyrie Elam and say, Hey, follow this guy around, use your natural talents. Um, so the more complex mentally a position is, the less likely you're going to see a, a freshman out there. Now, Pass rusher, you could probably do that. Hey, get out there and third down and run after the quarterback. Now, obviously, it's a little more nuanced than that, but you can see the development from there. Um, anything you would add to that? Yeah, typically, the further you are away from the ball, the sooner you can play. So as you mentioned, as a corner, you're very far away from the ball. You can play pretty quickly. As a DRO lineman, you're very close to the ball. Typically, takes you longer. That's kind of the rule of thumb. Uh, the question I think that that's asked here is a good one. So let's say that Dexter, you know, our five-star defensive end, Dexter Griffin, winds up redshirting. Is he a bust? Not yet would be the answer. Not at that position group. 
Um, I think that's super unlikely this year that happens given where we are, but that would not mean he's a bust yet. I mean, some people develop a little later, especially on the lines. But I think what you said was true. 30% or so, if I recall correctly, of five stars get drafted in the NFL, which is insane. That's a huge number. That means basically nine of these 30 guys that get a five-star tag are going to get drafted in the league. That's nuts, right? But it also means, Alan, that 21 guys are not. They're not busts. Most of those guys are going to be exactly what you said they're going to be. Three or four-year starters in a program. That is everything you want in a recruit. Do you need some of your five stars to hit big time? Yes, you do. But are you looking for guys who can be three-year starters? You better believe it. That's the name of the game. So you have to dial that in. Ultimately, a five-star is a bust when they really don't become a mainline starter. I think that is my expectation for a college player. If you're thinking every five-star is going to become some NFL freak, you have your expectations incorrect. But you should expect your five-stars to become mainline starters. If they do not, you've missed on that five-star. Yeah, Dexter's interesting because we do have some depth at our defensive line um, all across it. So I would expect him to play, but I, my expectations wouldn't be that he would come in and dominate right away as a along the defensive line in the SEC. Um, now, if Zach Evans is a five-star running back, I would probably expect him to play to b- crack the rotation. Dexter might only play a little bit. Like if he doesn't see the field at all, that would be concerning if there's not an injury. So obviously every situation is unique. If you have a ton of guys ahead of you and they're just like, why don't redshirt this guy? He probably still plays in four games. So that complicates the thing. I would expect my expectation for Dexter not having, you know, no practice reports. We don't know anything is like he'll play some. That's probably a fair expectation for him. Let's move into the future category, as you have created here. This is a good one. Rannis Lamberte asked the first question. I'm hearing a lot of Trask, or a lot about Trask, making a Burrow-like leap in 2020. So Burrow, before 2019, was off the radar, was off the Heisman radar. Obviously, we know what happened. Trask, similar. In fact, you could argue that Trask is getting more attention than Burrow did heading into this season now, if you look at Vegas odds and some other things. However... Uh, Alan, he's skeptical due to Mullen that he's not going to be able to allow Trask to do what Joe Burrow did. So essentially, do you think Dan Mullen is going to further take this step that we asked earlier and move us into a full-on 2.0, or do you think it will be more of the same from last year? What do you think is going to happen this year? Well, I would hope along the lines of what you said, us leaning into our strengths more and be a little more balanced, that we don't have to aired out every single play because we could run the ball if teams invite us to do it. Um, again, not we had long conversations about the mythical balance. Not that we want to be balanced, but that if you're going to put no linebackers on the field and you're going to let us run the ball for 15 yards a pop, great. You know, you'd be stupid not to do that. So here's the thing that allowed Joe Burrow to make a leap was the hiring of Joe Brady. Um, I think Burrow had this in him, obviously, but it took the right set of circumstances to unlock it fully. Uh, there's no wholesale changes like that coming to Florida this year. So I don't think we're going to see Kyle Trask all of a sudden go nuclear. But here's the weird part of Kyle Trask's story. This is his first year playing since his freshman year of high school. I don't really know what he's capable of. But from a coaching standpoint, I don't. there's nothing changing dramatically. Hopefully we lean in to what we're doing well. We make small adjustments. We're not going to reinvent our entire offense I don't think I'm gonna put myself out here and say that I do 
expect Dan Mullen to move closer to 2.0 for this season. Sure. As to whether or not that carries past that, I don't know. I do think he's going to spend a considerable amount of time this offseason thinking about how to maximize this team with Kyle Trask. For the reasons we've already stated, this is absolutely a potential year of the Florida Gators. You have a lot of reasons for this. You're not going to want to waste this chance as a coach. He knows he needs to maximize his quarterback's talent. It's rather unfortunate, Allen, that Mike Leach is now coaching in the SEC West. I think it would have been a much easier conversation if he was still at Washington State to say, I'm going to come spend a week with you up there. Teach me all you know. Regardless, there's plenty of ways for Dan to learn. So I'm gonna I'm gonna say yes. I'm gonna say I do think we move more into that. I think we move more into adding tempo. I think we add tempo with four and five wide receiver sets. I think we look to get teams stuck in bad situations much more than we did last year. And that's partly due to Kyle Trask, as you mentioned, having a second year starter job, uh, along with Dan growing into the role of coaching a a true, you know mental quarterback that throws accurately versus being a kind of a, a runner and a Are strong Are you expecting man. a burrow type leap? No, I think that leap is is well, that was you a generation make so many of yeah. those, right? And Burrow was absolutely it's exceptional. Ba- high bar there. But Trask has tremendous room. Trask is being greatly disrespected in my opinion by so many publications, which we will talk about later. The Burrow light leap, I mean you're comparing that to one of the greatest leaps in, in the history of college quarterbacking, coming from a guy who was nice and accurate and ran okay to prolific. That does not happen very often. Right. Well, again, I, I just don't think you have you always see that kind of production again. So I don't know if it's even possible. All right. Chris Perales says, how do you guys think you see the offense evolving with Trask under center? Let's Let's ask you this question. Does he become more of a running threat in your opinion? I'd say no. I mean, I think he'll be marginally better because he'll get more practice at it and he'll hopefully be healthier. But I don't he's not going to suddenly turn into like Kyler Murray back there or something. I mean, he I think he'll understand his spacing and timing better, but so it'll be more effective, but he's not a run threat, so to speak, if I'm going to put air quotes around that. Yeah, running is a bonus. I would like to see Kyle Trask become what Tom Brady does when the Patriots are really rolling, which is become a good quarterback sneak guy. He's a big guy. He's a strong guy. If you can convert third and ones consistently, that's a huge benefit. I don't need him to be doing all the crazy things we make him do, I think, to make this offense go. On the defensive side of the ball, do you think that we stop rotating the safeties now that we have additional depth? I mean, I would pray for this to be the case, Alan. What are your thoughts? It's hard to say yes or no because it didn't make sense why they were doing it in the first place. So if there was a reason that they were doing it and now that reason has changed, then you could say, yeah, they'll probably change it. But the reason they were doing it in the first place wasn't a good reason. So I don't I don't know. I can't predict them to follow a logical path. Yeah, I'm also going to say no, and that drives me crazy because we're reading the articles about, how, oh, yeah, we work out a rotation, and those guys know they're in there for these plays and these guys for those plays, and that needs to change. That junk is nonsense, and we talked about it last year. I don't well, something know has to change because on. Taylor is gone, so they can't roll out the same rotation they are using. They previously. can't, but there shouldn't be a rotation. You need your starters, and then you need your guys that play in garbage time or against bad teams, and end of story. So and if, if they're truly equal – then yeah, why not get everybody reps and get everybody experience so if one guy gets injured. But that was clearly not the case, so you have to abandon that protocol. Yeah, nor is that really ever the case. True. Truly equal. But you know, regardless, let's hope that changes. Right. Maverick, that's the greatest name in this whole M A V R I K. Well done, like yeah. It. Maverick. Love it. 
how do we think it's going to look overall? Talked about it. The offense. Okay, will it be better offense, and will it score more points? How about this? Will we score more points this year than we did last year? Just looking at Trask's numbers, we scored a lot of points. Right. That's uh, Without really thinking about it and like thinking about points per game and tempo and other things, I'll, I'll say yes. I agree. From this, from my standpoint or viewpoint here in the spring. I agree. I agree. So far from what we've seen, if everyone stays healthy, I think that's solid. Do you think Pierce will be an upgrade? And I'm going to ask this question because we're going to talk a lot more about it later, but I think I know you what your answer to this might be. But is Pierce an upgrade at running back? Do you do you see that? It depends on how you want to ask it. Um, as an overall player like and we're talking about receiver pass pro all that stuff there's a big question mark in terms of just as a pure running back the running back skill itself i would say yes that's probably pretty easy to say that yeah i agree and i think the better question is how good is the o-line i think a guy like pierce could be dynamic as our other guys could be uh and if the o-line's not good then i think you're going to really see all the little things p ryan did that it's hard to imagine Pierce equaling because Piron was so good at all those other little things that don't really get that appreciated that you might notice. Pierce, I think, again, a, a better, stronger, uh, yak you know, kind of guy, but you can't get that if you don't have the guys up front blocking for you. Ron Noel says, a lot of trash development, and frankly, the team's success will be contingent on the O-line play, which we just hinted at. How do you see our starting lineup shaking out now this is too early to predict this we don't want to get too much into that we've already talked about this though alan so we can revisit it a little bit how many new starters do you expect to see on this o-line well it depends on how you want to count that Uh, are guys in new spots new starters then you could see as many as like five if you flip the tackles and you're you know our theoretically preferred lineup again we'd like to see this in action would be garage at left tackle a wholly new starter at left guard, potentially Brett Heggie at center or Brett Heggie at left guard and a brand new center, Ethan White, presumably at right guard, and then Stone Forsyth at right tackle. That's from what we know closing last season. Now, guys can make a move who eclipse those guys, but at least from the coaching staff's perspective, that might be the ideal lineup. Again, we don't have enough data on it. But that was like we knew we could unlock something more than what we had with Delance at right tackle. That just was seemingly a bad fit all around. And how, looking at the O line, how much better would that kind of lineup do you think be? Five percent, not significant. 15%? I mean, potentially very significant if you get those guys in the right role. And again, uh, garage redshirt freshman. Um, Ethan White, true freshman. If you get them in the right spots and they have a chance to play, I and mean, this could be a very competent line, you know, and there's enough depth behind them to think that maybe there'll be some guys pushing them for playing time, which creates competition, which is all good. I think this line could turn out to be, I don't, they're not going to be like an all world offensive line. I'm not expecting that, but if you can get them to average to lightly above average, that's a huge upgrade from what we had last year. Yeah, I think that's the question. What's significant? To me, significance going from dead last to average. That's a significant upgrade. Yes. We said last year, if we had an average O-line, who knows what we accomplished. So that would be significant. And therefore, I think you could expect potentially a significant 
improvement. This is not going to be a top three offensive line in the SEC. That would be a foolish way to evaluate them. But average, yes, and that's a big step up. All right, Grenard, obviously gone. Heart of the team. Talked a lot about him. Are you worried about a drop-off in production with him no longer being here? I don't know if I'm worried about a drop-off in production in terms of his like individual stats. I think those are replaceable. Here's It's kind of the indefinable stuff. He stepped in as a leader of this unit. He was a guy who kind of held that team together because we basically got nothing from Zuniga last year. He was barely on the field. Grenard is a guy who set the edge, who rushed the passer, who was physically and mentally tough. And he stepped in as a grad transfer and was immediately a leader of this team. There's some things that are more difficult to replace sometimes than just sack numbers or tackle for loss. I think those will come. I don't know about those other things, and that those are harder to measure. Um, I'm hopeful that those guys who are behind him, who are elsewhere along the defensive line, can close that gap, but that remains to be seen. Yeah, talent-wise, we will be more talented on defense next year, 2020, than we were last year. Talent-wise, we will be more talented. Whether or not that turns into more production is is something Alan just mentioned. But I, I think it's fair to expect that we are more productive as a defensive line next year than we were this year. That's what I think. That's what I expect. That's what should happen based upon the talent Agreed. That I'm looking at. So we will see what happens, but I think that's what also should be happening at this state of our program is guys like Renard transfer. You got so much out of him. Fantastic. Uh, but you should be able to improve upon that. Right. And that's just not a knock on him. By not any at all. Sense, not at but all. But just where hopefully we're at as a program. Correct. All right. Do you think that not rotating our receivers, which obviously we did a lot last year, every series, every couple of series will help or hurt the team? So this year, we're not going to be able to rotate in as many receivers. Helpful or harmful? Both, right? So if you're taking the LSU strategy, you're going to get certain guys a lot of reps. You're going to create a lot of continuity with Kyle Trask. Harmful in that you're not developing guys and you're not preparing for injury. So I would think this staff's philosophy is you're still going to see guys get in there as they trust them. So any of those redshirt freshman wide receivers, Weston or Widmore, um, anybody else who emerges, they're going to want to get those guys reps. And I think that's smart. Uh, the LSU strategy is like a all or nothing kind of a thing, and they went for it, and I think that's good. Um, but it doesn't have to be that dramatic to be successful. Yeah, it really doesn't. I think in general you want your starters to play the majority of the time. If I'm thinking in my head of an allocation in the biggest games against the best opponents, you're playing Georgia, you're playing in the SEC championship game, you would like to have your receivers out there for 80-85% of the snaps together. That's an NFL-like ratio, and you're going to give them rest too. You don't want to be playing nine guys. It's too many guys. It hurts the quarterback. It hurts the continuity. It hurts the chemistry. It hurts the feel for the game. I think this year we'll be at a much healthier level of snap count whereas last year we really were playing everyone because we kind of felt like we had to well also we had a unique situation with so many receivers and so many guys that we trusted there's a a marked gap between the you know well theoretically between the presumptive starters and the backups all right let's look at this one uh some of us Derek barfield says me points the finger at himself not you or i wrongly assume that some units could pick up a 19 where they left off an 18 despite losing experience such as the offensive line in 2020 with positions such as buck wide receiver and maybe even punter no more tommy townsend 
Do we think that we can at least hold or even improve, or is this foolish thinking? Well, we talked a lot about the buck position with Grenard there that theoretically, you know, we should produce. I, I mentioned I was a little bit skeptical. I'm not skeptical. I, just not a slam dunk because of all the things that he brought to the to the field. I mean, some of that stuff, like setting the edge in the run game, is grunt work. And he was fantastic at it, despite being undersized. Wide receiver, here's where we might be, I don't know, in a little bit of trouble. I think we know what we'll get from Grimes. Copeland is still very much a project to me. He often ran incomplete routes, didn't track the ball. He's a very athletically talented guy, but as a wide receiver, he needs a lot of growth. And Tony still hasn't proven he can be anything more than a gimmick player, despite his fantastic highlight reel-esque you know, plays out there. And everybody else is a complete question mark. So you're hoping between Grimes, Pitts, and some combination of those other guys that you can get enough production out of them. And then punter's hilarious. I mean, I love Tommy T. I guess you just got to hope that Australian punter is going to come through. Yeah, Maybe Tommy, not. Yeah, Tommy T was so good, especially at pinning teams deep. It would be hard for for anyone to equal his his production at that spot. But I think that you have to just curve-wise, growth curve-wise, level of, of veteran to freshman ratio where the team is, you would have to expect that we are improving in most positions entering into this season. Probably not all of them, but in most of them. Receiver last year, as you said, was an embarrassment of riches. Hard to imagine us ever having that much talent depth-wise. So I don't think we'll improve as a group on one year. team. Yeah. Right. Now, do we get improvement in individual stats? Almost certainly. Because a guy like Grimes is an absolute freak. And if he's getting to play 85% of the snaps, his stats are going to go to the roof, which last year that could not happen. But as a unit... Hard to imagine you could really improve upon all the guys that we had last year in that particular situation. All right, let's go to Nick Isaac. This is going to be a fun one. So there's a 247 article that ranks the top SEC quarterbacks for 2020. Now, there's been many of these companies to do articles. Trask has sometimes been number one, which is great, and he's sometimes been much further back. This one sort of represents where a lot of people are, Alan. And what we're going to do here is I'm just going to basically start at the top of the list rather than the bottom. We'll just give you the the spoiler alert answer right away and read off these quarterbacks, and we'll start with the top five. Number one, K.J. Costello at Mississippi State. Stanford quarterback, nothing stellar to look at. Obviously, this shows you what the Mike Leach effect will do in the SEC. He comes in, bingo, number one, throw the ball over the place. This is an entirely reasonable expectation if you're looking at stats. Dude, you put him number one as the best quarterback. Very different than saying this guy's going to have the best passing stats. I mean, that'd be hard to say considering what we put on the field at Stanford, but I don't think it's an outrageous assumption. Um, it's not, The next ones are, are a little bit more interesting to me than even that one. Even though that one, if he was just coming in as a guy, let's say he was transferring to, I don't know, Ole Miss or something, I wouldn't be like, he would be towards the bottom. But that Mike Leach effect, like you said, has people going, maybe he's going to have the best stats and be the best quarterback. Yeah, and that's the best question. So do I think this guy is going to be the best quarterback? No, I don't. I've watched him play plenty of times. Is he going to have video game stats? This is the question. Maybe. Welcome to the SEC, Alan. I can't wait to see it. I don't think he is. I'm going to put myself out there right now. As much as I like the air raid, which I do, as much as I enjoy Mike Leach, 
I feel like Mike Leach is this super hard-headed, system-oriented guy that has not bent this thing in the right way yet. I think Mississippi State could be in some trouble against the foes of the SEC. I'm going to say right now that KJ Costello is not my number one quarterback in the SEC, but I will say this. If KJ Costello, a guy who has not taken a single snap in the SEC, is your number one quarterback, Allen, what does that tell you about the quarterbacks in the SEC? It tells you that number two is another guy who's never taken a snap in the SEC, Jamie Newman, the Wake Forest transfer into Georgia. This is interesting. I, I will confess I did not watch a lot of Wake Forest last year. I maybe saw them play once. He's a guy that, you know, on Wake Forest roster, looks talented. He's, you know, a bit of a question mark in what he's actually able to accomplish. I think he was one of the more talented grad transfers. He has some upside, but I have no idea what he's going to look like in a Georgia offense with a new offensive coordinator. So, I mean, total speculative pick there for sure. Oh, absolutely. We have two super speculative picks. And in comes number three, Kenlin Mond at Texas A&M, a guy who routinely struggled to complete even the most basic of passes last year. So this is interesting. Uh, on this list, where would I put Kellen Mond? He'd still be in the top half because it's a pretty, it's a list filled with question marks and guys who haven't proven themselves yet and guys who, frankly, are a little one-dimensional. And I think under Jimbo, he's at least going to be somewhat productive. But it's crazy to me that you would put him over number four. Number four is ours truly, Kyle Trask. He's my number one, and I'm going to tell you why right now for obvious reasons. Okay, Kellen Mond ahead of him, dumpster fire throwing the football last year. He's going to be a senior this year. He's not going to magically wave a wand and become an accurate pastor. Athletic guy, fine. Not taking him over Kyle Trask. Number two, Jamie Newman. Dude played at Wake Forest, Allen, in the ACC. Now he's going to play in the SEC with a very tough schedule on a team where he doesn't know anybody. Rebuilt. I mean, Georgia. get offense. out of here. That's yeah. ridiculous. And then number one, KJ Costello played in California for Stanford, was never lighting the world on fire. He's going to play in Mississippi State against a super loaded SEC West. All these guys are ahead of Kyle Trask, who all he did was have one of the best quarterback seasons in Florida history a school that's got guys who have lit up the SEC as quarterbacks. This is insane to me. If, if by no other reason, by default, you look at this list and you go, you know what? We should probably just put Kyle Trask in number one. Well, returning starter. Until proven otherwise. Yeah, I mean, what, what, what else must you look at? But this is the world that we live in. All right. So I think you and I both agree out of those four, if we're talking about pure quarterback, Kyle, Kyle Trask is going to be number one, right? Well, at least you have to start there. I mean, yeah, but it right? would be very safe. I think this is a little bit of a provocative list. It'd be weirdly be safe to put Kyle Trask number one. He's the only guy who's returning who's had a reasonable amount of success. Let's keep on going because you're going to see why this 2020 should be the year of Florida. Let's keep going. All right. Now we're at Alabama. Mac Jones, projected starter. I still think, Alan, a lot of things could happen For before sure. Mac remains the starter. But right now, Mac Jones fifth. Again, I'm probably putting Mac ahead of Kellen Mond and Jamie Newman and probably even KJ Costello because he plays for the machine that is Alabama. And he's already proven he can score points. He did it last year. He had a, he had horrific two red zone possessions. So he'd have waxed, you know, he'd have waxed Auburn there. And he obviously against LSU had had a nice game too. So I'm a little confused with the list here with Mac Jones. I don't even love Mac Jones. I no. watched him play, but I'm, I'm just fine with him at five. Who are we look, Who are we looking at here? Like all these guys are. Do you want to do a tier system here? Have fun with this one, right? All right. Next, next is a 50 percent passer, Bo Nix at Auburn. 50 percent completion rate. Here he is. Well, I'm looking at the rest of this list. 
And I can't say I hate it. Number seven is Felipe Franks at Arkansas. Are you with me here in the SEC, people? This is gross. Felipe Franks going to a dumpster fire Arkansas team. Number seven. You know what? I don't think I disagree with it. (laughs) It's wild. Which is crazy. Everyone knows how I feel about Franks because next on the list is Terry Wilson of Kentucky. Who I'll give it to him is a very cagey, gamey quarterback. But Terry Wilson is a wide receiver who throws the ball. He's nice. He fits their system well, but... This is the SEC, Alan. I don't know. Number nine? Number nine? John Rice Plumley. So, so here's a guy. If you watch him at the end of the year under Rich Rod, he started accelerating. If he was still under that system, I think he would be much higher. The fact that they're bringing in new people, how, how's he going to fit under Lane? I think he would be a guy that actually would put a little higher. I'm moving him much higher. Much higher. He had a sensational close to the season. What what the heck did his other guys do? Felipe Franks? Come on. Get out of here. I'm moving him higher. He's going up. He's climbing. All right. Ryan Helinski started the year well. Injury. Struggled really for the rest of the season mightily. Comes in at number 10 in South Carolina. He could be okay. He's a guy that you could probably put almost anywhere on this list just because he's potentially a returning starter. Yeah, I thought there were some high points with him and then some low points. I'm not sure what to make of him. I feel like he was injured. He's somewhere in the middle. He could be high as five or six and, and as low as where he is. All right. Jarrett Garantano or Guantanamo Bay for Tennessee, who who has to have one of the most bizarre starting career arcs where he's benched and he's hated and he's getting in fights and he's in and now he's back and he's returning and he's at number 11. It's crazy for him. That shows you how little respect there is for him on this list that he's at 11. I mean, that just goes to show how little confidence people have in him. He's so crazy because he could have the worst game possible and he could come and play kind of well and help win the game and anywhere in between. So I I guess I, I can't argue with him being that low. If you wanted to put him at number seven, I also don't know that I could argue that either. Yeah, it seems like certainly these crazy. guys are <laughs> this crazy. is interchangeable. It's dumpster fire. Sean Robinson at Missouri. I have no idea who this is. Who is Sean Robinson is the question, right? Well, there he's number 12. He's ahead of Miles Brennan at LSU. Who's been there for a while and couldn't win the back, couldn't win the job when Burrow came in. That seemed like an indictment against him. Maybe not. We'll see. I mean, he's a total question mark. Yeah. And then lastly, we have Ken Seals at Vanderbilt. Uh, I have no opinion on Ken Seals at Vanderbilt. So I just want to give you just very quickly, number 14, Vanderbilt, SEC East. Number 13, LSU, Florida opponent. Number 12, SEC East. Number 11, SEC East. Number 10, SEC East. Go down. Number 9, Florida opponent. Number 9, Florida opponent. Number 8, SEC East. Are we seeing a theme here? Yes, we are. And then number 2, who's a guy who hasn't started a single game in the SEC, starting for Georgia, if you can't look at Florida's schedule and say, this is a very interesting year to be a Florida fan, you're missing something, which is what we're saying. So there this quarterback go. list, interesting. There's a huge reason why I feel like Florida is already, Alan, a very high betting favorite. In fact, we're as high as fourth or fifth on the win-it-all betting list in Vegas. And this is one of the reasons why. If you're looking around, what do you need to win? You almost always need an experienced quarterback. That is a requirement to win in college football almost all of the time. And in the SEC, we're the only team that has one that's accomplished anything. Only one, us. Pretty wild. All right, let's look at some records before we close out the podcast. This is also a fun article that Saturday Down South wrote. And 
We'll start with completion percentage. So the Florida record for a season is Wayne Peace, 1982, was 70.7%. Which is incredible for 1982. Which is phenomenal, especially. But he probably threw like five passes a game, right? <laughs> Uh, but a year ago, Kyle Trask completed 66.9% of his passes in just 10 starts. That, Allen, was the third best single-season completion percentage in Florida history, which earns him fourth on 247 Sports' list of quarterbacks entering into this season. Do you think it's possible that Kyle Trask breaks this this season? Yes, definitely. Um, I don't know that he will, Um because if he was like at 68 or 69%, it's not like that's bad. That's still incredible. But I think, well, here's the, here's the case for him to break it. Offensive line is better. He has more time. There's a running game that you have to count for. And we're not asking him to make tight rope throws the entire game. That his windows will be bigger. Now, again, maybe more drops. You have to factor that in because we had some guys on the team who would never drop the ball last year. Some of the guys on the team this year who might. So that could affect him. But this is very much in reach. Yeah, I'm going to put that one as a very possible record that could be broken. All right, second one. Most catches by a tight end. Aaron Hernandez had 68 in 09. How many did Kyle Pitts have last year, Alan? 54. 54. Missing three games with Kyle Trask. True. So do you think he gets past 68 this season? I'm going to make a case where he won't this year. Now, if you bring back that same group of receivers, I would actually say yes. But I think he's going to be keyed on so much that it's going to be difficult to get him the ball as much as theoretically we would like to. So possible, but I don't think probable. Touchdown receptions in a game. This one's interesting. Because there were only two guys tied with four touchdown receptions in a game, which seems like you would have more. Yeah. We got Ike Hilliard in 1995 and Jack Jackson in 1994. Is there any chance that we have a Gator receiver get four touchdown receptions? In a game? I think it's more possible than it ever, or that it ever has been, than it's been in a while. But one, two factors we have less guys you're going to see a lot of snaps, as we detailed above. And we actually seem like we want to throw the ball around at close to the end zone. Right. Um, previously, under Mullen, it's going to be a QB sneak a lot. You just don't have a lot of opportunities. But I'd say Grimes and Pitts are at least somewhat likely for this to happen. I wouldn't bet on it, but it's it's much more possible than it previously has been. Yeah, I'm going to put this in the in the the positive category here. I think this is. A, so you think a, more a, likely not? So I'm going to go like 51. percent like wow. it's a coin flip with some upside because I can very well see, given our schedule, some games where somebody walks into that. I mean, Trask is throwing three touchdown passes almost every game, and and now he's going to get a lot of reps. He's going to get the garbage reps. We'll see. Field goal percentage. This one I'm going to put in the absolute highest category. This is, in my opinion, going to be a lock, assuming we can get him enough attempts. The record is 88.4% by Bobby Raymond in 1984. Evan McPherson would have had this record already in both of his seasons if he had simply attempted and made one more kick. So he's fallen short of what he's needed to get it done. But he's one more kick away. And I mean, this is, I think this is again, does yeah. it happen? I don't know. I'm going to say it's going to happen. I, 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 think I would think most so. Likely. That, you would have to say it's much more probable than not. I mean, obviously with kicking, things can go south a little bit sometimes, but... This feels the most obvious. I agree. All right. Passes defended. This is here's a, a weird Here's stat. a fun one. 1987, Lewis Oliver had 19. 
Now, Kair Elam last last year in a very shortened season and very limited action had three picks and seven passes defended. So that's what you're looking at. What do you think about this? This is a hard stat because if you're really good, then teams don't throw at you. So Luis Alvaro had to slide in this category where he was good at defending passes, deflecting passes, but also not so good that teams didn't want to throw at him. So, like, I mean, there's certain guys who have, like, two passes defended because they get four balls thrown at them over the course of several games. I'll say no. Yeah, this one seems extremely, extremely unlikely, especially given the modern game of college football, very analytics-driven, even with passes like that. No one is going to be throwing a billion passes at Elam. In fact, if you look at his usage rate, <laughs> I don't think anyone's going to throw at him. I mean, he's an absolute shutdown corner. I don't see that happening. Now, could Marco Wilson get it? Could Trey in Dean get it if he's I over mean, there? That's still way I mean, too many. That's just too many passes, I agree. All right, rushing yards in a game. Emmett Smith had a whopping 316 versus New Mexico State in 1989. Do you think this gets cracked this year? No. <laughs> yeah, there's no way, especially with the, the rotation we will also have now when we employ in the modern game. That ain't happening. And lastly, 300-yard passing games. So Trask has obviously thrown for more of them, and we compared him a lot to this particular guy, Rex Grossman, whose record was just broken by none other than Joe Burrow this past year. Rex had an incredible 10 games in 2001 when he was robbed of not winning the Heisman because Seriously. he did not give it to sophomores. Any chance that Trask does more than 10 games of 300 yards passing this season? Mm-hmm. Well, again, are you counting SEC championship game? It counts. He's already season, play, yeah. He's already playing another game than Rex probably did in 2001. Uh, I don't know if this includes the bowl game, actually. Um I would say not likely, and here's why I would potentially decline that, is because theoretically he might not play enough of the game. Against these cupcakes, I doubt he's going to be in long enough. He probably would crack 200 yards in those games, but I mean, you would want him out by halftime. So I don't know. I'm going to say no. I, I think he's capable of it, certainly, but I'm, I will say no. I will also say no, and and a lot of that goes to Steve Spurrier being your coach and That's Rex true. Grossman slinging the ball on the field all the way deep into the fourth quarter in a lot of those games. Dan Mullen does not do that, so it seems unlikely that he would be able to hit that. Okay, let's answer just a few more questions. Then we're going to do a little basketball segment. So no, this is turning into quite a long podcast, but hopefully you're enjoying it. All right, Jeffrey Hoy, back again. Ask James to briefly recap your three-year test for coaches. Um, and also, does the success of Coach O at LSU in 2019 change how you view or apply this theory? All right. If you're new to the podcast, the three-year test is you hire a coach. You look at what echelon you're in. So Florida's tier one. They can win a national title. That means within three years, your coach has to compete for a national title. That's pretty much what that means. Either make the playoff, lose a heartbreaker, but you got to be super competitive in that, uh, or you have to win. That's a three-year test. Then from there, you can scale it down. So if you're at Nebraska where Scott Frost is, you can look at your predecessors. You can take a look at what your trend line looks like. You can scale this test along, but primarily it's really useful for looking at, hey, at Florida, should we keep a coach or get rid of a coach? And you have three years to get there. So for example, at Florida, Allen, we right now have one more year in our three-year test. And although things have been great, we haven't won anything. So we're failing the three-year test. It's not done yet. This is a crucial year for Dan. In the case of LSU, at O, very surprisingly, 
wins a national title, does that mean that he passes his three-year test? Well, not so fast, my friend. You do have to take into account anomalies to any theory. There are exceptions to every single rule. This rule just sort of helps you as a fan or AD think, do I have the right guy? A guy like Ed O could easily fit into a Gene Chizik-like realm. Magical situation, magical player. Ed O gets magical player, magical season, magical coaching staff, magical new coach. Maybe this is the end of LSU's run. They could be like the Marlins back in the day where now they go back to being good, but not LSU. Time will tell. What I'm basically saying is Edo's passage of the three-year test does not indicate to me that he's going to be a Nick Saban or an Urban Meyer or one of those guys. His is a special case, much like a Gene Chizik was. The three-year test should primarily, like we said, be used uh, in the way that we are looking at it. And then it should be taken with a grain of salt in an Edo case to say, well, were there special circumstances? Certainly, Alan, if Dan Mullen and the Gators were to win the SEC championship next year, go to the playoff, win or compete for a national title, there would be no special circumstance that we would have. There would be no, oh, look, we hired this extra coach. We changed our whole scheme. We had all the best coaches money could buy. It would really largely Dan Mullen's team. And that would indicate to you, yes, he passed this three-year test. This coach is someone we should hold on to. The three-year test is interesting because at one point in time, Alan, it was sort of unheard of to get rid of a coach before five years. That was not enough time. In fact, when Notre Dame fired Tyron Willingham famously before his contract was up, the whole coaching world was sort of up in arms. How can you do this? And now just this year, we saw our, our friend Willie Taggart get fired, right, in less than two years. Chad Morris, same and thing. And Chad Morris, same thing. So this makes sense to me. Again, as an AD, I think we developed a three-year test here on this pod when we are discussing you know, previous coaches and Florida's regime as a way to evaluate them. Uh, so the question here is that he asks, Jeffrey asks at the end, is is it too early to speculate that we dodged a bullet? No, because again, Nebraska is not a tier one team. So you've got to look at what happened before Scott Frost. When was the last time they competed? What does the environment look like? What are the expectations? His three-year test will be different. It will not be to win a title. I think you would expect him this season to take a significant step forward. And if he didn't, there's other circumstances you need to look at to see what's going on. Right. So I say the three, if I can comment on your three-year test, that it's not this defining at all costs. So there can be some circumstances like what around that. So even at an elite program, like, well, you mentioned in the negative, like a Chiswick, right? Obviously, Auburn ended up firing him. And there might be circumstances why you don't progress fast enough, too. So it, it's not a you know, ironclad case either way, but I think it's a really helpful tool that you kind of <laughs> developed to help us think through how do we evaluate coaches and what is the expectations for them? And if you missed that whole pod, you can go back and catch it. I think it's like season two. But what I really did was a full analysis on every single coach that won a national title or competed for one and how quickly they showed turnaround. And the reality is almost without fail, Alan, if you're an elite coach, you show turnaround within three years, significant turnaround. And if you don't, you can find plenty of excuses, but very rarely does that coach get with that. And I have to mention this all the time. Clemson, <laughs> absolutely in no one's world was a tier one school when Dabo Sweeney took over. Go look at their records, not even close. So it took him longer to get there, but he was obliterating Clemson's own history as he was getting better. So it clearly would have told you Dabo was performing above the expectation. That's really what it is. It's a way to measure your own coach's production versus your school's past. And like you said, you do have to take into account all of these other 
factors. But a nice little way to look at it. We'll talk a lot more about it this season because, of course, Dan Mullen does enter year three of the three-year test. Okay, William Bryan asks, a lot of coaches, players, and media talk about culture. And I think that common shared values are fundamental to any culture. Our program now seems to value competition, accountability, and, of course, relentless effort. Can you guys grade the current Florida football program culture and talk about what a championship culture looks like? And then he says he always loves the high-quality content. Thanks. I love when you guys write a question and pop us with like a little, little kudos stamp. It's very nice. The culture at Florida right now is as good as it's ever been. Dare I say the best it's ever been. That's a big thing to say, but I think that's probably even just completely true. Uh, you're <laughs> Why not, would you say you're not ha- Well, one, you're not having a lot of news come out about guys getting in trouble. That's a huge change from the past 10, 15 years of this program. Two, you have without a doubt a team that's very unified compared to what we've seen in the past. And this is evident by articles written about the team, talking to players that are around the team, former players who know what it looks like to have good glue, good chemistry. Uh, And then lastly, you have a leader in Dan Mullen, who is a very competent, excellent brand ambassador for Florida. And you haven't had that since Urban, but then Urban went into Bizarro World at the end, right? Uh, You certainly didn't have it in in Muschamp or McIlwain. Ron Zucchi didn't have it. And Spurrier was, of course, quintessential Florida man, right? In the right way. He's fantastic. So the culture itself under Spurrier, though, very divided. It's well known that Spurrier didn't even know half the the names of his defensive players. He didn't pay attention to them, didn't care about them, wasn't looking at them. Dan's the opposite. Dan loves these guys like a family. And to me, that's what culture looks like. He's attention to detail kind of guy, of course. Very strong. He loves these guys. It's a family atmosphere. Now, does that mean you win a championship? No, it doesn't. You can have a phenomenal culture and not win championships. You have to have a good culture to win. But it doesn't mean you will win. But I do think Florida's in as good of a spot culture-wise as we've been maybe ever. Uh, cohesiveness, continuity. And that's a tremendous, tremendous, tremendous job by Dan Mullen. He gets all the credit for that. That's all from him. It's all his vision. It's fantastic. Florida's in this spot right now, especially looking at Miami and Florida State and other schools. It's nice to be where we are. So this is interesting. It's it's hard to know that we talk about intangibles cause they're not tangible. So grading a culture I think is very difficult. And also we haven't really faced a ton of adversity, right. In terms of the scoreboard, right. Losing Felipe Franks was obviously potentially very difficult, but you had someone even better step in. This team hasn't had to face like some of the challenges that over the course of a longer term of a program that you would potentially have to face. Um, so I think the culture is really good now, but it hasn't had to like deal with a lot of adverse conditions. Um, but maybe the adverse conditions haven't been created because the culture is good. This is one of those things where you kind of only know it when you see it. Oh man, that's really bad. Or you're hopefully hearing things that are really good. We'll see that can change in a hurry. Also because you change out your personnel so fast. So the culture can go south quickly. But I think Dan Mullen is a guy who understands that this is important and gives a lot of effort to it. And now for our final section of the day, basketball. Brian Rosen writes to us on Twitter, please have on the guy who predicted Florida to win the national championship in basketball before the season. Well, Brian, we have a treat for you joining us today. In his vehicle, so you may get some road noise, is none other than our basketball guest, 
Justin Seitz. Justin, welcome back to the program. Thank you for having me. I like how you now refer to me as basketball guest rather than basketball expert. Um, (laughs) Thanks for uh, bringing me back on to shame me. Um, And I apologize to Gator Nation for getting your hopes up preseason. However, we can still win the national championship. So I wasn't completely wrong yet. Well, James, or James, excuse me, Justin, I think all of us were kind of in line where you're thinking, I mean, national pundits, everybody, what has gone wrong with the team this season? Well, I mean, honestly, in a word for me, I'm just, I'm disappointed. And I think this has been a, a pretty poor coaching job by Mike White. Um, I think when I came on the podcast preseason, I thought with a new crop of guys, a different look, um, that we would really excel this year. Um, however, I'm just kind of tired of Mike White for the past two years kind of saying, you know, I've done what I can. I can't figure out how to get these guys to play better. And I'm just tired of hearing it. It's his job to get these guys to play better. And, uh, you know, I think we haven't gotten as much as we thought that we would out of our freshmen. Um, I think Kerry Blackshear has not produced quite as much as most people thought and that's kind of led us to the point we're at Noah Locke has been a little bit inconsistent shooting the ball this year Um, and here we are in another really frustrating basketball season with a frustrating team to watch Uh, and I don't know what the answer is (laughs) Justin you and I have had a lot of conversations on this the fans want to know your opinion. Is this Mike White's fault or is this predominantly the player's youthfulness or just not being as good as expected? Yeah, I think it's probably a little bit of both. I mean, you don't want to bury the guy. I I still like Mike White. I'm not one of the people who's out there saying he should be fired. Um, And, and, but again, we if you watch us play, especially early in the season, we just never look prepared, first of all. Offensively, we're very stagnant. The ball doesn't move. It sticks. I think we were even watching a game together early in the season, and I couldn't watch anymore, and I just turned on YouTube and started watching really good college basketball offenses like uh, John Beeline at Michigan or Jay Wright at Villanova just to help uh, take me off the ledge. So I think offensively there's issues. It, we don't get into offense quickly. It, it just We look a little bit unorganized. I will say that we've gotten better as the season has progressed on the offensive side of the ball. Um, and then defensively we often look a little bit unprepared. Guys don't know where to go on rotations. Um, seems like there's some miscommunication regarding ball screens. And we just have a lot of um, breakdowns defensively. And those are just things that I think the coach should do a better job at preparing the team on. And I've heard people use the excuse that we're, you know, we're a young team and we haven't really played together much, but you know, a lot of these teams are young and, and we have three sophomores who have played every game for two years. They're no longer young. We have a, a grad transfer in Kerry Blackshear who, um, 
has played in big games, and I just think that excuse of that the team is young and haven't played together. And, you know, at this point in the season, you should start to see them start to gel a little bit more. And so I think you know a big part of it can be laid on Mike White, and then um, I think part of it too is some of these guys haven't risen to the occasion. Our freshmen have just been okay. I think, you know, Scotty Lewis, who's a top 10 player, is basically just a, a great defender and an energy guy. You don't get much out of him on offense. And, um, you know, we've been pretty disappointed in the production that Trey Mann has given us as a McDonald's All-American. So I think you can put uh, a little bit of blame on both the coach and the players. All right, if you're Scott Strickland... <laughs> What do you do in this situation? I'm gonna give you. I'm gonna give you three options. The Gators lose in the first round of the tournament after an early exit in the SEC tournament. The Gators go to the Sweet 16, or your dream scenario. Let's just say the Gators make it to the Final Four, which I think at this point in time is an almost impossibility, but still a possibility. Let's talk about the first scenario because the other two, you, you you keep Mike White, you give him another year. But what if Mike White flames out in the SEC tourney and then also goes out right away in the NCAA tournament? Is there any chance that you, if you're the AD, would fire him? You're giving him just one more year. What does that look like for you? Yeah, um, no, I think if I was the athletic director, there's there's no way Mike White would be fired at the end of this year, even if we kind of even if we flame out, lose our next three games, and possibly don't make the tournament. I think he's done enough um, to to give him one more year. I know it hasn't been spectacular with him, but it also hasn't been abysmal or atrocious. It's not like we're missing the tournament every year. Um, he is able to show that uh, he can get talent. Uh, so I think I would start with possibly maybe assessing our assistant coaches, maybe get a little bit more experience, a guy who – can maybe run offense a little better or teach defense a little better, like an older guy. Uh, like when I was with the program, Larry Shiat was there and um, just a veteran voice. I think that's the place I would start with his staff and see if there's any changes you can make there. All right, Justin, one last chance of redemption here. <laughs> it was the national championship. <laughs> now, with a, with a little more than a week in this season left, where does Florida end up this season at the end? Oh, gosh. <laughs> um, well, I think we're, I think we're in, you know, barring any unforeseen circumstances. So we'll, we'll probably make the tournament. I'd say we'd be anywhere from like a 7 to a 10 seed, depending on how the rest of the season goes here. And I, I just, my gut says it'll be something similar to last year where we could possibly pick up a first-round win and, and, and maybe lose in the second round. You know, if we get hot, then maybe you go to the Sweet 16. But um, there's just nothing that this team has shown me uh, that really instills a lot of confidence that we can make a deep tournament run. So that's my pick. I think I also picked the Gators to play uh, Michigan State in the finals, and that has looked pretty bad all year. However, Michigan State might win the Big Ten now. Um, so watch out. Yeah, college basketball is pretty wonky this year. Who knows what's going to happen in the tournament? I think it's going to be especially chaotic. Yeah, I'm excited, and and that's the thing. That's the thing about it. It is pretty wide open. There doesn't seem to be that one team that um, is the prohibitive favorite. I think uh, Kansas looks pretty good, and Gonzaga. 
Um, so, you know, with an, with an open field, you never know what could happen, but I, I would, I would predict that we would go out in the second round or maybe the sweet 16. All right. Well, he is Justin Seitz, used to be our basketball insider and expert, now just our basketball, just basketball guest, guest, but still uh, now just a guy, still the opening voice of the Gator Nation football podcast. He's wow, got the trivia. golden pipes. Justin, thanks for taking some time to join us. Uh, hopefully your original season prediction is close to being right. If not, it's going to be a, a frenetic offseason for Mike White, and I'm sure we'll spend some more time talking with you about it later on in the year. No problem. Thanks for having me. And uh, one more thing, less Quest Glover. Thanks, guys. Ozzy Mutz asks, James, with the disclaimer that you aren't a Mike White fan, which just means that I don't think his performance has been very good, nothing personal against Mike White, how do I look at this year's underperformance? Well, I'll answer that first part right now. I, I blame it exclusively on Mike White. I think that that's his fault and that he's struggling as a coach. He asks, is it largely that our five stars aren't living up to the hype? That's partially it, but I don't really think so. I think from what I see, the coaching issues are much larger than any kind of player or talent issue. Is it a knock on Coach White? Yes. Or the reality of not having perfect information about high school, how high school players translate? No, it's not. First of all, your job as a basketball coach is to identify players that fit within your culture and your system. It is much, much easier to identify basketball talent than it is to identify football talent. The game largely translates, Alan. What you have to teach your players to do is to play at a high level against you know, different defenses and constant pressure and things like that. But it's a much simpler transition for basketball players. It is not the same thing as football. That's largely why it's much easier to pin the blame on coaches, especially when your roster stays healthy like it has this year. So for me, I've seen enough of Mike White. The only thing you could convince me of would be to give him one more year where I as the AD come in and then I say, you are going to hire this coach or these coaches and those are going to be basketball coaches. I think Mike White's a tremendous recruiter. There's a reason why you would give him one more year. I think he's a below average basketball coach. I think he's proven that now. You can say he's young, but this is his fifth year in the program. We have declining results regardless of talent on the roster. For me, you have to look the data in the face and accept it for what it is. And Mike White is not a good coach of the game of basketball. He's a well-spoken guy. He's a smart guy. Not a good basketball coach. Not getting what you need out of this team. Very uneven performances. Very uneven effort. Something must be done. So if you're going to give him one more year, you got to say, this is who you're hiring. In absence of that, for me, I'm done with Mike White. So if we keep Mike White in the same staff next year, I'll come right here on this podcast and I will say, do not expect anything from this basketball team. I don't care if we keep our entire team. We will underachieve whatever you think our level should be. And that doesn't mean we couldn't be better. We could have all the stars line and have all this talent here next year and go to the Elite Eight. But we will underachieve, in my opinion, Alan, uh, much like a certain man that my family loves to hate on, uh, Turgeon at Maryland, who's a notoriously great recruiter and a very average to below average to terrible basketball coach that is currently underachieving right now with a loaded Maryland team. I think you'd see more of the same from Mike White. So it's such an interesting conversation because so much of this is wrapped around our expectations for the Florida team, which are in a vacuum you know, not necessarily Mike White's fault. He didn't come out and say, hey, this is a top five team and we are going to win the championship. We're basically expecting that partly because of who we're 
expecting Scotty Lewis to be, who are expecting Trey Mann to be, who are expecting Omar Payne to be, the growth of certain players. Now, again, you should expect some level of growth. You should expect some of these highly talented guys at least be decent. I think we were wrong in some of our evaluations or our projections. So I think that's half of it. And the other half would be this team hasn't gelled, hasn't played well together. Offensively looks muddled. Defensively looks lost at times. I I would be a little bit in the middle, right? Because normally a guy, a top 10 guy like Scotty Lewis, you'd be like, he should be much more polished offensively. Noah Locke, it's crazy to me that he will hit four or six in one game and 0-5 the next game and start the season as he did. I think this team has gotten better, and that's encouraging to me. Better yet, very uneven. All right, lastly, imagine that Mike White's gone because this is the question that we're getting. Is the dream scenario that we get Billy Donovan back? Obviously, yes. That's like the most layup question is of all time. Is that possible at all? Thank you very much, Ozzy. 100% you take Billy Donovan back, a guy who has proven to be a winner. Despite some some gaps in his game, we're all human. We all have gaps in our coaching game. He's phenomenal. You would run to meet him in Oklahoma City, put him on a plane and fly him back here, obviously. Outside of him, would you hire someone older like uh, John Beeline? who's 70, but also a wizard. Yes, absolutely. Thank you very much. I'll do it. Or do you hire a young and up-and-coming coach? I'm going to answer this question very simply. The hire of Mike White was fine. I have no problem with the hire of Mike White. It doesn't mean he's going to make it. I think something that fans get wrong, Alan, is like you have to get every hire right. You cannot get every hire right. It's just not possible. All you're doing is hiring talent. It's like recruiting five stars. You pick the best guys you can. Some don't work out. There is no magical evaluation that can keep you from getting this right. You just can't do it correctly. Your job is to manage your failure quickly and not to let it linger longer than it has to. So for me, whether it's younger or older, you try to take the coach, I think, that gives you the best path to win a championship in basketball within three to five years or at least compete for one. That's the coach you hire. And if you get John Beeline and he coaches you for five years and you go to two final fours, that's a great hire. And if he's gone, you go to the next guy, right? You're constantly kind of firing these shots. And every so often, if a miracle happens, you get a Billy D, or you get a Mike Krzyzewski, or you get one of those guys. Uh, but I think that's what, for me, it looks like. So I just want to put that reminder out there that you hire based upon projected ceiling and talent, and you totally expect a certain percentage of your coaching hires to fail. That's just normal. Now, look, Mike White's not done yet. I would love to get on this very podcast, Alan, and say I was wrong. He turned it around. We won the national championship in 2021. I'll eat all my words. It's just that the reason I don't say that is the data is not very favorable towards the trend that Mike White has put out in his five years of work. That's all I'm saying. These are not personal opinions. It's just based upon data. If I am investing in basketball coaches, the data tells me don't invest in Mike White. That's where my opinion lies. Right, and I would say that the whole Mike White is garbage as a head coach. I mean, I know we're frustrated, but that is outrageous. There are plenty of teams who, with Florida's resources and potential, are missing the tournament, right? So part of the reason that we're frustrated is because of the type of talent, what we think the team could be. And Mike White is not a garbage basketball coach. I think he's a very good basketball coach. Is he an elite basketball coach? 
Well, as you said, doesn't the data wouldn't suggest that right now. But if if we fired him, he would immediately get hired by somebody. Right? It, so doesn't mean you shouldn't fire him. Now, if you have a guy and you fire him and he gets hired by nobody, it's like you should have done that a year earlier. Right? Why are you extending this guy who nobody else is willing to hire? Uh I again, I'm a little bit more patient than you on this. I do see upside with Mike White. In terms of Ozzy's question, hire a young and up and coming coach or someone older and more established. It depends on how old, right? And why are they available? I think I would rather take someone at the beginning of their career rather than the end at a place like Florida. But it doesn't have to be like a John Beeline in your 70s. There's other guys that are a little more medium ground, like a a 50-year-old or something. But Billy Donovan, we will never replicate that. We hired him when he was 30 years old. He had barely coached basketball at Marshall. That was a home run swing by Jeremy Foley, and he connected on it and he hit it out of the park. So that type of hire is incredibly rare. The fact that you have a chance to hire the guy who's going to be a Hall of Famer at 30 years old and you do it is just not replicatable. It's kind of like the Joe Burrow experience at LSU. I don't think we're going to see anybody take that kind of leap again. But I do think there are a range of options at a place like Florida where you could get some really intriguing candidates. So it's not like um, there are no options for us out there. But there's also a big chance that the next guy we hire is not going to perform as well as Mike White. So that's very realistic. Doesn't mean you don't make the move. Again, I think the best path forward, as you said frequently, hire an offensive assistant who can really shore up that part of your game. And if everybody stays and we do that, then I think all of a sudden that team becomes really intriguing again. And it works for Billy Donovan, as we mentioned before on this very podcast. And and Justin mentioned when we talked to him, Larry Shiat totally changed the fortune of Billy Donovan. He gives Larry Shiat a ton of credit for helping him coach something he had no idea how to coach, which was defense. And in fact, Alan, I think you would agree with this. You could watch Billy's teams ebb and flow with the quality of assistance he had. And when we had guys that all became head coaches on one staff with John Pelfrey and uh, you know a host of other guys, they made a Anthony significant Grant, yeah. difference. A significant difference. And I don't think there's a single guy on Mike White's bench right now that has anywhere near the esteem that the guys on Billy's staff did. That's the fact that they've been with him as long as they have and they're not people aren't poaching them. Exactly. Maybe not a great sign. Exactly. And I think that's part of the job as an AD is sometimes you've got to say, look, you've got a lot of positive qualities, Mike, but this is holding you back and ultimately it could cost you your job. You're going to need to try this to do what is best for the program. All right, speaking of the program, this program is done. Alan, great work today. We answered all of the mailbag questions. Wow. All of them. Thank you guys for sending them in. It's uh, guys and girls. It's great to get them all. Every single year we get more and more. We gave you like less than 24 hours of notice and you delivered. So thank you. Give yourself a pat on the back. Again, as always, if you like the content, hit us up, write us, follow us on social media. We love to hear from you. We make the show for you guys. Uh, big shout out to Frankie who's sitting here in studio with us. His podcast potentially called Frankie for Real. Franklin for Real. Franklin for Real. Or oh, Franklin for Real, which is... I think one of the greatest podcast names there is. I don't know what the show's going to be about, but it doesn't really matter. I'm already in. Yeah, big shout out to you for sitting here for three hours as we did this podcast. Uh, well done. If you too want to learn to podcast and sit in the studio, <laughs> just let us know. We'll take you on in. Uh, thanks to all of you all. We'll see you again before the spring game, I believe, will be our next 
podcast uh, will do before and after. And in the meantime, as always, if you have ideas for content, send it to us and we will attempt to include it in our next show. Until then, everyone be safe, be happy, and we will see you next time. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.